one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I unfollowed every single person from my Facebook feed, and I thought to myself, "What does the Facebook page of my ideological opposite look like?" I would just want to know what. People who completely disagree with me are looking at and where they're getting their information from. That is Australian journalist and documentary producer Jan Fran. This is episode two hundred and seventeen of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Happy 2018 and welcome to the first of the new shows for this new year. I hope you enjoyed the shows across the summer break, uh, but we're back. We are on. It is, uh, everyone's back on deck. It's that time of year in Australia when you're like, oh, I guess I suppose I better go back to work. We all pissed off around December 20 and like, well... Maybe I'll just, I'll just show up and check some email, but then it's Australia Day, so we might just leave for another week. Yeah, so it's that time of year. It's fantastic. Um, but yeah, there's a great new show today. Um, it's a doozy uh, with Jan Fran. She's the uh, co-host of The Feed, which you can see on SBS Viceland. You can follow her on Twitter right now. Find out a bit more about her. Find her on Twitter, Jan underscore underscore Fran. So two underscores, Jan underscore 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 Fran, F-A-R-A-N. More about Jan in a moment. Big thanks to everybody that got in touch this week, including um, the person that emailed my management to tell them that they absolutely hated the show. I appreciate that. Feedback, it is, after all, the breakfast of champions. You can always email me, send Osher email at gmail.com. Thank you very much for all the magnificent pictures uh, that you sent me this week of where you listen to the show. It's called a Podsy, P-O-D-S-I-E. 
E, just, you know, you're listening to this on a phone. I mean, unless you're the one of the two people that listens to this on an iPad. One person listens on a laptop. So I don't know if you want to take photos of those things, but um, you can if you want. Um, but there's some uh, some brilliant photos coming uh, coming my way, uh, glorious stuff of uh, people on incredibly warm train platforms in, uh, in Melbourne, um, <laughs> 45 degrees, I think it was, the other day. And uh, Matt, who sent me a podsy, of um, himself sitting on Qantas Flight 620 somewhere. Um, and there's a, pos- uh, 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 a beautiful picture that Dion sent me of all the things that she's collating to take to the Frankston Markets um, to sell. So if you go down to the Frankston Markets, you probably have already because it's the weekend that's been by now, um, you would have seen some of Dion's beautiful glassware. Well, that's good. Hope you got a good price for it, Dion. So yeah, whatever it is that you do while you listen to the show, it's always interesting to find out what people are doing. Got a great picture of someone demolishing a house in Rotorua. Um, that was ace to get that email through. I just love that I get to be a part of your day, whatever it is that you happen to be doing. Um, I'm grateful to be a part of it. And uh, I love it when you send me a picture of what you're doing while you listen. And sometimes I like to share them out so we can all get to know each other a little bit better. Send Osher email at gmail. Um, I guess, you know, to check in with you, if you're new to the show, um, I'm in now, I'm in week six of going fallow, no meds. Um, I'm someone that uh, needs, needed to take meds every day so I could uh, get on with my life. But in this off season between, between um, shows, I'm just trying to see how things have changed and if I'm, you know, if my brain's changed enough while being on the meds that I might be able to live life off of them. That's not without its challenges. Uh, I'm working on a book deadline at the moment, so I'm under the pump trying to get things handed in in time. There's there's a bit of stress about that, um, that's for sure. It's difficult difficult getting used to the intensity at which I can operate, though. Um, I remember friends telling me that I, I, I used to be hard to be around. I was a very intense person to be around. And Audrey just the other day has shared with me, she goes, I'm more than one occasion that I'm, I'm way more full-on about really little things than I used to be, and um, that's not a great way to be. You know, it's it's not a great way to be if you you know there's someone that you like to be around, but you are a punish for them to be around you. That's not ideal, is it? So uh, it's a disadvantage not in my only my home life, but also at work. Um, it's okay for now. I'm uh, I'm only off the meds to see how I go, and but I have noticed, as I told you before, that my brain is a lot more receptive to the CBT work and the other stuff um, that I do, the kind of cognitive reworking and reshaping and, you know, neuroplasticity work that you try and get to groove new neural pathways into your head so you end up changing your behaviour over time. That stuff's starting to stick. Maybe maybe I'm just going to have to put my nose to the grindstone and work on sorting myself out some more. Well, it's not maybe. I'm going to have to because I guess if my brain can now be a little more open to moulding and it's back in a more malleable space, I'd, it's probably time to get to hard work, hard at work on reshaping my automatic responses to things. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm going to do this week. <laughs> I managed a few work, uh, a few mornings on the bike this week. That always helps start the day with some exercise. The more intense, the better, I find. Um, the big one that I had this week is I, I woke up and, my you know, my, my body's remembering that, um, you know, when meds aren't around, my body is remembering, oh, that's right, we're awake. Fucking shit, the world is ending. So, like, the moment that my eyes open and I go, I'm not asleep anymore, I get half a breath in before the anxiety punches me in the stomach. And um, on the bike this week, I, I, uh, I was doing some pretty fun intervals and 
I was just, you know, repeating in my head as I, as I, you know, pushed the pedals over and over that no mental state is a permanent state. And just to remember that, that even though right now it's fucking intense, man, and it's hard and I'm afraid and I want to, you know, hide, this is not a permanent way and, and it's not how the rest of my life on this earth is going to be. And, and just, but at the time, you know, your brain's telling you that it is. So you kind of have to just remember, okay. Okay, this is this is not permanent, and uh, I know how to change this. Mood follows action, so get out, do some action, see what happens. And sure enough, an hour after waking up in fear, I'm on the bike and off the bike, and things are a hell of a lot better. So, you know, I know what I need to do, and um, got to remember, no mental state is a permanent state, and I just got to remember that. Had a couple of... Uh, I had one fun morning this week. I actually got out. I normally ride on an ergo trainer, which is uh, it's like an exercise bike, but a fancy version that is down in my garage. Um, but I actually, I actually have a folding bike that I used to use uh, when I caught the train to the radio station up in Brisbane. Um, and I rode my little folding bike out to Luke Heggie's house where he has a little folding bike and we both rode little folding bikes all the way down to Maroubra to play some Scrabble at a cafe there. It's, it's really bloody good to have a mate who likes to go on adventures, even ones involving nerdy travel versions of Scrabble that have long lists of acceptable two and three letter words printed out in very, very tiny font and lovingly folded up inside the tra- case of the travel Scrabble just in case you need it. Um, but, you know, like the saying goes, Men don't talk face-to-face. Men talk shoulder-to-shoulder. So it's good to go out and do something with another guy where you can talk about what's going on in your lives at that moment. And it's kind of, it's okay to talk about heavy shit when you're trying to pilot a tiny-wheeled folding bicycle amongst morning traffic and avoiding overtaking garbage trucks and opening car doors. It's good. <laughs> Always feels good. Big thanks to everyone that shared the podcast this week and, and let somebody know about the show someone new makes an enormous difference to my download numbers all you need to do is just tell one person about the show that's all i ask just tell one person about the show this week you could text them you could facebook them instagram i don't mind just just please just tell one extra person that you care about about this show because more listeners means better guests means better shows for you to listen to and that your friends will thank you for turning them on to you see everybody wins it's the circle of life that's a song about animals eating each other but it can apply in a, in a, in a way oh, no it doesn't um so with that in mind here's i've got this fantastic show for you today it's a conversation that i, I know that you, you can't wait to share with someone who who would love to hear it my guest today is Jan Fran. You can find her on Twitter at Jan underscore underscore Fran. Uh, Jan is the co-host of the nightly SBS news show, The Feed. She's an incredibly skilled journalist and a documentary producer. Uh, she's covered stories in places that you or I would be frightened to even fly over. Her recent work is available to see online at sbs.com.au, including a documentary uh, that she's made, America's First Climate Change Refugees. And we talk about that show at length in this conversation. Jan speaks three languages, but because I only speak one and not well, um, we had to do this podcast in English. Her story is really inspirational, and it made me really happy because... As our world careens ever more closer to critical problems that will only be be solved by a global decision-making process, Jan will be there on our telly to help us make sense of whatever the hell's going on. 
Now, this conversation does cover some pretty grim subject matter. So uh, when you hear us talking about um, her time working in Africa, and if you're feeling a little bit sensitive to stories of kids in, in hardship, uh, you can skip forward about 10 minutes and you'll be safely on the other side. This story is a long one. I hope it gets you through whatever it is you're doing this week, however many sessions it takes you to get through it. I hope everything's all right. But it is worth every moment. Please enjoy this rigorous and very fun conversation with the incredibly smart and incredibly talented Jan Fran. Well, you made it. You're here. I did. That's great. Hey, thanks for having me, by the way. Hey, I'm thrilled you could be here. Great. You know, it's uh, it's super exciting that that you're here, It's, but it's also super exciting that you do what you do and, you know... I'm just grateful that I can have you on. Oh man, thank you. I was no. looking. I was looking at the past list of people that you've like <laughs> spoken to, and it's very long. Yeah. You had literally everybody else on this show. No, no, I haven't. And I started to get a bit gels and FOMO, even though I was also doing it. You know, really, what gave you the yeah. gels? Oh, my life just runs on FOMO. Oh, really? Yeah, it's the fuel. It's my fuel. I FOMO. had to. I had to get past that. It oh, was, did you? Oh, it was yeah. killing you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's been a good motivator for me. Yeah? Yeah. I'm okay. I'm okay with it, with having FOMO. Mine, mine was an unhealthy amount. Of FOMO. Of FOMO. Like uh, an, uh, an egotistical, um, self-centred jealousy that made me gnash my teeth in rage when um. other people got gigs that I was convinced that I deserved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's this really good quote which I say all the time, I think it's attributed to Gore Vidal, but it could be something that I saw on Instagram. I'm not sure. But it's, it's, it's like every time a friend finds success, a little part of me dies. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if you've heard that. No, I know that. I know yeah. that when I've heard it. That's sort of like the human experience. Yeah. Like when I, when I heard that quote, I was like, oh, okay, there's other people who are also like this. It's, part of the, it's kind of part of being human. I was like, oh, I'm okay with it. Well, I, I'm... In my life, as I'm sober and in my life of sobriety, I've learned uh, to do a thing called contrary action. So what I used to do when I was drinking and using, I now try and do the opposite, all right? So mm. say if I'm, a, if I'm angry, anger is just fear. It's like, okay, then so how can I instead be angry about something? How can I show love towards this thing? All right, mm. if I am being... Uh, uh, controlling of something, how can I, if I'm wanting to control something, how can I be an acceptance of it? Mm. If I'm being jealous of something, how can I be joyful for it? And so I, I find that just, you know, if I'm finding myself in those ugly emotions, I just go, you know, fuck, I'll just fucking do it for my Right. So it's kind of a deliberate strategy <laughs> to just think what is the, what is, what's the opposite of yeah. the, this feeling that I can be, and then just moving towards exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It, invo- it involves, you know, and it's been, and now it's, I'm actually doing something that I'm, you know, I'm actually, you know, happy to, you know, there was someone who got a gig the other day that it's the kind of gig that I've wanted my whole career. Mm. And this person got a gig and I was like, oh, fuck yeah. Mm. That's a really hard thing to get up. That shows a really hard kind of show to mm. get made. Bloody good for you. There are also people who I'm like, I'm just genuinely happy for because they're just good People, they're good, decent people, and I sort of just want them to do well. Yeah. Um, and I would say there's like there's a there's a big proportion of people who I'm friends with and who I know that I'm kind of just genuinely happy for. Like if they said, "Oh, I, I've got this, or I'm doing this, or I'm doing that," I'd just be like, "Good for you, man." 
You know what I mean? Because if you're happy, then everybody, you're going to spread that, right? Yeah. And then people around you are going to be happy. But it also um, shows that where, where you are, you're not searching for anything outside of, of where you are to make yourself feel better. It shows how, how solid you are. Yeah, I think so. Where you are. To, yeah, I think yeah. I think that that comes from kind of, from a level of being relatively fulfilled. Yeah, in one's life, <laughs> which I think I am for the most part. Like I'm 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 generally quite happy. Well, you managed to do a, a, a pretty fabulous mix of um, here's this ridiculous thing that happened in the world today. Let's try and deal with it by making fun of it. Yeah, and. Here's something really fucking serious. We really need to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I, I, you know, I've, I've self-labeled myself the queen of light and shade. Ah. I hope that sticks. No one has called me that yet, except for myself. But I feel like I tend to move quite easily between because I'm a journo. And that's 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 my sort of training, and it was like, you know, um, kind of serious. I'm doing quotation marks mm. for the people that can't see us. Um, it was kind of serious sort of journalism um, and I was always very comfortable in that space with, you know, the very serious news voice that you put on to do your stories that you have to do. Give us in. a serious byline. It was my – yeah, it was a very Give us serious. the end of the – It used to be. Give us like uh, okay. when you were in Africa, give us one of those ones. Okay. <clears throat> Here on the South Sudanese border, the people don't know where they're going but tomorrow – is a new day. Jeanette Francis, World News Australia. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it, it's, a, it's a thing that I can do because oh, I'm sort of trained to do that. That's exceptional. Um, wow, that was really good. Yeah, what's not, it used to be my job. People were like, oh, yeah, you could. Did, did you just riff that off the top of your head or is that what you actually wrote on the day? No, I, I, I made that up, but I imagine it would have been something like... Hopefully not. But it had everything. It's very it, cheesy. It had everything. It was like it was a wrap-up of the story. It was a wrap-up and a look forward. And a look forward. Very it was much. all there. And then you, and then you tie it up yeah. with the, you know, Jeanette Francis. And it was Jeanette Francis. Yeah. Um, which I, I have a problem with my name because it's got two N's, three E's and two T's. And I never get emails because they always go to Jeanette Francis with one N. Who lives in the United States, by the way. She exists and has on several occasions gotten my emails because people just don't put two N's. So I've just started going by Jane Fran. I see. Mm. So where did the – okay, so I want to ask you where the journalism part started, but then I probably would like to ask you about uh, – because you and I share a thing and that we both weren't born in this country. Ooh. Yeah. Um, where were you born? Uh, well, I was born in London, but mm. I was born to two people that were refugees for a part of their lives. I so did, actually, I think I do remember. From Lithuania. My, exactly right. Mm. Mum was from Lithuania and dad is from um, the Czech Republic. So mm-hmm. both people fled Russians but at different times in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and mum's journey involved uh, coming by boat uh, to Australia. Mm-hmm. But she was white and back then it was full white Australia so they didn't mind so much mm-hmm. that she only spoke German. Yeah. Also, <laughs> they needed people to build the country, just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> so they were like, please, come in. Yeah, there's four million people. <laughs> build these mines, yeah, you know. Yeah, and there's these, these tunnels through the mountains. Yeah, that's right. Um, but then she, she met, a, she met a, a British guy who was out here blowing up nuclear weapons in um, the Australian desert and um, went back with him uh, there were sanctioned tests. It wasn't just, you know, just a oh, guy sure. on the <laughs> It wasn't weekend. a crazy inventor. No, he was mm-hmm. actually it was an officer in the Air Force, mm-hmm. I think. And, uh, but he turned out to be a, you know, a bad dude, so she left him fairly quickly and then just flung around London for a while mm-hmm. and then um, 
dad showed up in the late 68 with a in no English really and uh, running away from the Russians and they met a few years after that. And he was he spoke German and she spoke German uh, and that's how no, they communicated? No, mum had been living in Australia for a while so oh, she, right. she spoke English boy and then dad didn't have much English. Um, he'd come straight from Prague. Uh-huh. I think they had Russian and German and I don't know. How many languages? Yeah. So you grew, you grew up in, in Lebanon? So I was born in Lebanon Yeah. Uh, and I moved here when I was four. So, right. yeah. What so, do you remember of Lebanon? Um, I have hazy memories, but... Um, Any city that we'd know? No. So it's, a, it's, it's in the northern part of Lebanon. Um, it's sort of like a, a... It's a village. Yeah. It's a little Lebanese village in the north of Lebanon. Um, I sort of remember things like shutters on the windows, which were green. They were sort of French green shutters that would open and close. And I remember outdoor areas um, being kind of paint. Wogs love concrete. They love it. They love concrete and tiles. I don't remember a carpet in sight. Mm. Um, I remember uh, we lived on a hill and I remember that hill was was quite high. I remember, and I would have been three at the time, maybe even two and a half, walking down the hill mm. with a cousin of mine who was maybe three. And uh, I, w- I remember buses. I, w- I was at school at that time. So I, I probably would have been two and a half or three when I started school. You start went to an international school, and I think you start quite early mm. over there. And I would catch the bus on my own with all of the other school kids. I was three and a half, mm. and I remember the yellow buses and and certain elements of um, the school that I was at. We used to I used to pick these little um, like these little grassy things, and that and I would eat them, and they would be very very sour. Mm. And I remember that. They were these little things that grew in the grass. And I would have been, I mean, I would have been three and a half. Yeah. Yeah. What were you folks doing? So my dad uh, worked uh, at the bank um, and my mother was a teacher. Yeah. And what, what, was it a multi-generational household? Was everybody there? Yeah. Yeah. My gra- we lived with uh, my, my dad's uh, mother and um, his sisters, his two sisters, my mother, my father, myself. Right. And downstairs was um, cousins, so, so it was a it was a big kind of house. Right. So yeah. dinner time was just chaos, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, probably. I have no recollection really right. of having you know big kind of family meals, but I imagine there would. It just would. It, it's it's just an open. It's a different way of living. It's just an open house. People are in. Yeah. People are out. Revolving doors. You know, everybody knows everyone. So everything's open. You don't lock anything. Yeah. You know, every single person that walks past. You know, my, yeah. my grandmother. God love her, the village troll, Nan Fran, who'd be like, <laughs> you know, out the front. Right? She's just having a look at who's walking past, who's it's old coming to get You know, it's old school Facebook. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Sit on the front, sit yeah. on the front desk with a front step with a cup of tea and just watch yeah. the news feed go by. Yeah. That was her news feed. <laughs> well, she still does it now. She sits at my parents' house in the front yard, just kind of just having a geese at the neighbours, waving, <laughs> you know. It's great. <laughs> so uh so was this what, uh, late 80s, mid 80s? And this would have been mid to late 80s. Yeah. Yeah, 86, 87, 88. And what? 89. What was the thing that instigated your folks to, to get out of there? Um, look, I think, you know, my parents were economic refugees and I think they just saw no future in the country. I mean, it's it's got issues <laughs> is probably the easiest way of putting it. And I don't think there was really a huge intention on the part of my parents to leave. My auntie was the one who wanted to come to Australia and she got the form. This is the, how the story goes, which I probably still have to ascertain from my dad. But story goes, she was sent the form 
to fill out to eventually migrate to Australia and she decided against it. And so my dad, who living in the same house, went, oh, you got this form? Well, I'll fill it out. We'll see how we go. Uh, and he fills it out and uh, they say, come in for an interview and they go in for an interview and they say, all right, well, you've got, you've got a visa. I You're going to Australia. Welcome to Australia. That was it? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they would have had to have gone through the yeah. whatever processes existed at the time. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it didn't seem like too difficult a, pl- a process for right. my parents. But and we had a lot of family here as well. So oh, okay. We, yeah, we had my all of my dad's uncles were here mm. and they'd been here since, you know, the 60s. And okay. So we already had an established family here. Did you have any family in the south of Lebanon? No. Right. No, only in the north. And is that a more... Um, like- Christian area of, of Lebanon. I'm not, I'm not exactly familiar with the uh, country. Yeah, generally. Yeah. Okay. Um, there, there are Christians in the south. Yeah. But predominantly you'd, you'd find them in the north. Right. Mm. And so you are coming to a country on the other side of the world, but there is some familiarity about it mm. that you've obviously heard letters and postcards and things from people that have lived here going, yeah, it's pretty good. Yes, and money. Well, I don't know if we were sent money, but that, that's kind of what happens. You know, right. people go overseas and they send money back to their family and people go, Australia is this magical fairyland where money grows on trees. And really they've just been working 17 hours a day, you know, seven days a week. Yeah. Um, yeah. Under terrible conditions being called horrible racial names, but they're like, ah, fuck it, I'm getting paid. Maybe, maybe. I haven't really inquired as to what the early days were like for members of my family, particularly my uncle who came here when he was 16 mm. and kind of settled in Redfern because Redfern was quite a big area for Lebanese immigrants at the time. Um, and he just worked. Yeah. He just worked, yeah. as did my dad. I mean, it wasn't until I got a job that I realised a work week was not Monday to Saturday because he would just work, you know, Monday to Saturday every single week and still does, right. six days a week. And when we were younger, we never he never took holidays. I can't remember him. I mean, he would for Christmas, but it would be five, six days because mm. he had his own business and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Audrey's dad, uh, much the same. They came after the 87 coup from Fiji mm. and, um, yeah, arrived with Zip and he just – Audrey Audrey talks about, um, you know, uh, her mum would uh, pack up dinner and put the kids in the car and they'd all drive to the office Uh uh, Audrey's dad's a surveyor and they would go to the office and have dinner with him while he was, you know, filling out paperwork and shit just so they could see him and then they'd come home without him. That was the only time they saw him in their day. Right. He was gone by the time they got up. And yeah. He was gone. He, was, he was, wasn't home before the, by the time I went to bed. I think that's um, – I wouldn't be surprised if that's a very common experience among kind of kids of diasporas. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Um, kind of um, uh, not voluntarily absent parents. Involuntarily absent parents yeah. type thing, you know, and it, uh, and, it, and it certainly is a, is a thing. Um, you know, and I've only really kind of come to consider it that when I started looking into seeing when I was trying to you know buy buy a home, and I thought, hang on, every, everybody else I know is able to get loads of money from like their grandparents and stuff, mm. but ours came here with nothing. <laughs> And have mm. worked our ass up just to get the house that we got to live in. Mm. You know, this idea of generational wealth that is um, so taken for granted by so many people yeah. in, in power, the famous bank of mum and dad quote from our well, prime minister. Well, I, I mean, I'm bummed because I'm married to, you know, like an eighth generation Australian and we're not getting any inheritance from that side. And Gipped. I was like, I was banking on you, mate. 
I, my parents came in with nothing. You didn't you know do what your mean? due diligence beforehand. I didn't do my due diligence. Oh, I Damn should have. Friend. I know. I should have. But I didn't. So no one's getting any inheritance, which I think, I mean, to be <laughs> completely honest, I'm absolutely fine with that. Yeah. And if my parents said tomorrow, you know, all of this money that we've saved in this house, we're going to sell it and we're going to go around Australia and blow all our money on just living, I would be like, good for you. Buy every teaspoon we Do, can find. Yeah, yeah. You go to those tiny little towns in Adelaide in your Winnebago and you buy whatever you want to buy and you can do it for the rest of your life. Like I would just be yeah. so okay with Send that. Send me some tea towels. Yeah. Yeah. So you arrived in Australia, you were a little kid. You, what was your English like when you arrived? Um, so my English was <laughs> – it. so I was selected in my um, little primary school – it was it was almost a sort of a preschool or a prep school to do the farewell speech in English, um, and so there's this little video of me and I'm dressed. I've got my little um, you know those graduation gowns with the little graduation in hat. Lebanon or Australia. Yeah, this is in Lebanon. It's pink. It's a pink graduation gown with a pink graduation hat, and I'm doing this farewell speech in English. Wow. And it's you know it's broken English, mm. but. It's English nonetheless. And I think it was because the, the teachers there at the time were, thought, were like, oh, who could we get to, who speaks well, you know? And I think I, I kind of, I take to languages relatively easily in terms of like orating. Is that the word? Orating? Orating. Yeah. Orating. Yeah. I don't do so good with the grammar and the, you know, and that was very evident when I learnt French and lived in France. Um, but I could speak, speak very well. Like I would sound correct. Mm. Um, and so my English was sort of broken, but I started school, um, very young. Basically we arrived in June of 1989 in Australia. And I don't know how the New South Wales government allowed this to happen. There's obviously a flaw in the system that they might want to check out after listening to this podcast, but we arrived in June of 1989. By September of 1989, I was in kindergarten, but I was only four. I'd only just turned four basically. Um, so if I had started that year, which would have been the case if I'd been here, I would have basically started at three and a half, which meant that I did the HSE at 15 and then went into uni at 16 because my parents, um, told them I was four turning five rather than three turn, turning four. <laughs> yeah. But you appeared as for, for all intents and purposes as a kid. Oh Yeah. She, well, she can speak a, and she can learn. And I mean, this is this is what I think sometimes when I think back at that. I was like a non-English speaking toddler in a kindergarten classroom, and no one went, "Why is she here?" Uh -huh. You know what I mean? I, I I'm sometimes a bit stumped by how they how they let me just yeah just go through to grade one. You'll be fine. Yeah. And, I mean, I was, but. Um, yeah, I would have started incredibly young and been a bit different, I think, just because I couldn't speak English yeah. properly. Yeah. Yeah. So you, the the orating was a thing. It's interesting because we, we kind of have that in common. Both my big brother and I, we started school way earlier at parents, you know. Did your parents lie? Uh, possibly um, <laughs> because they always spoke to us as adults. Right. And both my brother and I, elder brother and I, I don't know about my youngest brothers because I was already at school by then, but we could both read by the time we got to primary school. Right. And, um, you know, so I remember, remember sitting there looking at all these other kids and like, hang on, 
oh, wow, everyone can't do what me and my brother can. Oh, I got both of my folks were very, you know, mm. both doctors and both academic people and really valued education as many immigrants do. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I, I, rem- I remember that, you know, so mm. looking around and going, wow, okay, I guess I'll just sit here and wait for everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's just, you know, how parents just think their children are the most intelligent children. Yeah. That ever did exist. <laughs> I genuinely think my parents thought that. Yeah. Quite wrongly so. You know, but they were like, oh, she's fine. She's been to school in Lebanon. They got her to do the English speech, for God's sake. Right. She's fine. Got it. She can speak English just like everybody else. And it was like, no, 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 she can't. Um, but it all kind of worked out. Yeah. Yeah. So through, uh, as someone who, did you grow up as a Francis or did you have a different surname there? Ah, you're not the first person to ask. No, that's my name. Wow, that's great. That is my name, so you, Jeanette Francis. So you present, you presented fairly, I mean... Ethnic light. Ethnic light mm, with an L-I-T-E? L-I-T-E, yeah. Yeah, right. That's what I like. That's what I refer to myself as. Right. Well, yeah, in jovial conversations, of course. No, but it's, but, you know, when it, when it comes to, you know, snap judgments of, of, mm. of schoolyard bullies, you can kind of slide under the radar a bit. Yeah, I mean, I was always... Because there was a lot of Lebanese kids in in primary school um, and in high school, I, there was always kind of um, I, I, I was never really the only one, you know. So I never I was never bullied for being a particular ethnicity because there were so many of us, yeah. So to speak, there were so many of everything, yeah. So that wasn't, you know, I, you have to understand. I grew up in the most multicultural county of the most multicultural city of the most multicultural state in possibly the most multicultural country in the world. So it was completely normal for everybody to be from everywhere. Um, And I think, yeah, I I, I don't think I ever got bullied because I was a particular ethnicity. Which part of Sydney was that? Uh, Bankstown. Right. Yeah. Blacksland, highest no voting electorate in the country. <laughs> We're talking about the same sex We're talking about the same, Yeah, that's right. Uh, in case you're listening to this in three years, this is 2017, <laughs> yeah. in December, early December 2017. Thank you for contextualising. Oh, it's important. Yeah, know, it's true, absolutely. Because I was putting a compendium um, of, I'm very happy to say that I'm now going to be on, I'm not only on Qantas at the moment, I'm now going to be on Virgin Australia as well. Um, and so I was putting together kind of a greatest hits um, selection of podcasts to go on the first initial run of in-flight entertainment. Mm-hmm. And... Like I started this five years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Twenty thirteen. I was. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's that's pretty yeah. good. And, and um, you're up to number three hundred or something. Uh, late two hundred. Uh, no, I'm early two hundreds. I think this oh, week okay. will be up to ten. Wow. Yeah. I used to do it every day, every month, every Monday. You just do one every Monday. Yeah. But it's the same with you know, it's the same with what you do. But you know, at, at SBS, you know, you just keep doing it. Yeah. And then after a while, you're like. Oh, shit, I've done heaps. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, it's potentially, yeah. particularly with a show like The Feed, which is just every day. Oh, yeah, it's relentless. Yeah, and mm-hmm. then because uh, I, you know, I uh, have, a, again, I have a similar experience with it's not quite current affairs, but the Channel V thing, we were doing three hours live every day, five days a week. Mm. And before you know it, you know, wow, we do more at the time. We do more live TV than anyone, including Bert Newton, and mm. he does 20 hours a week. <laughs> you mm. know, but yeah. then... You yeah, know, you within, rack it up pretty quickly. Yeah, within yeah. a couple of years, you're like, oh, shit. I'm, I somehow managed just to get good at this by just doing it every day. Mm. Um, yeah, we did rack it up pretty quickly. But it was Channel V and so it was the music industry. So that was, yeah. that was a vague cocaine joke. 
Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. So yeah. that's why I didn't get your joke. No, I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment. So, uh. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, okay. So you grew up in the most, you grew up in the, the most multicultural. multicultural high school, the most multicultural suburb, mm. the most multicultural city, and possibly the most multicultural country in the world. Pretty fucking excellent. Mm. When was the first time you realized, oh, not everywhere's like this? Oh, I think when I went to Sydney Uni. So um, you were quite, so 18, 19? I was 16. 16? Yeah. So I started Sydney Uni when I was 16. I didn't get into law because law requires a mark of 99 point something and that just wasn't, that wasn't going to happen. That's, I'm, not that, I'm not that person. I don't have the discipline. Um, and also I question it too much. I'm like, why, why do I need to get that mark? That's, why do I need to do that? I don't want to do that, you know? Um, so I got to Sydney Uni and it was... Um, you know, I'm a 16-year-old. I've just come out of my high school where I've been relatively popular and well-liked and, you know, people know me and I know this person and the bus picks you up and drops you off home and, you know, you walk home with your friend Lisa and it's great. And um, suddenly you're at this enormous university um, full of people from everywhere who are really, you know, getting great marks and trying quite hard. I, I spun out that you didn't have to go to class. I was like, you guys, you don't have to go to class. You know that, right? Like, there's no role. This is amazing. We could stay here, you know, in this pub for all of eternity and no one would care. <laughs> and I think, and everyone was like, mm, do you know how this works? And I, the short answer was no, I didn't know how it worked. Um, so I think that was like the first time that I was sort of really out of my comfort zone. And I ended up doing an arts degree and was like, what am I doing with my life, you know? Um, and I dropped out. I dropped out second semester, the last day that you could drop out before you get a fail on your record. I was like, I cannot have a fail on my record. I got a mark of 50.0 and that was just like a kick in the dick. A kick in the dick. Yeah. That was like, it was like, you know, if I believed in God, it would be God saying, this is your last, this is it, girl. (laughs) This is, this is your last warning. Sort some shit out type thing. So, Were your parents of a particularly, you know, high standard of expectation? How did they feel about their, their daughter dropping terrible. out? Terrible. You're dropping out. You're not going to university. You have to go to university. You, you had to go to university. It, wasn't, it was non-negotiable. And I don't think any of us, I have two other sisters, like none of us tried to negotiate. We all knew that, you know, that's where we were going to go. Um, so, yeah, when I dropped out, my parents like, you what, what are you doing? Why are you dropping out? And I said, I want to do acting classes. And that was, you know, my mother had to sit down. Um, and so they indulged me and they paid for my, my six weeks of acting classes in Paddington at the time because I didn't have any money. So I was like, can you please pay for my acting classes? They're like, all right, we'll give this girl, maybe she'll return to her senses eventually. So I did that. This was in the second half of first semester. Uh, this was in the second half of second semester. So yeah, in 2002. Um, and then 2003, I basically went to the University of Western Sydney on my initial marks and my HSC marks. So I was scrapped first year. I was like, we start again. I did journalism and I just worked. Like I read every book by Anthony Robbins that year because I'm like, I need some motivation. I need some self-help. I can heal my life. Louise L. Hay. 
um, you know, <laughs> The Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart's pretty good now. Eckhart's really good. Actually, that book was a seminal book for me. Yeah. Uh, I was highlighting every page. I was like, I get have it. Have you ever listened to him speak? I have. I have to listen to him on 1.5 speed because I'm like, Eckhart, yeah. come on, mate. The feeling that you have is the pain. <laughs> the, this is the reaction of the pain body. It is to be ignored. Yeah. For the pain body is just another part of oneself kicking and screaming like a spoiled child. That is Eckhart. <laughs> that's Eckhart that's actually Eckhart Tolle. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's, he's a pretty, pretty wacky guy, but... Uh, I, I, you know, I really like, and in many ways, the the, the things that he speaks about, uh, the things that went on to kind of really save my life in no way at all. When he speaks about the thinking self and the observing self, mm. once as a human, once you figure that part out, mm. um, I was speaking earlier about jealousy or anger. It's only possible really to do anything about those things if you then observe the anger or observe the jealousy and go, oh, okay, so I'm feeling anger that I'm not actually like. Yeah, there's anger going on in my body. Okay, why is that? Because if you if you can't do that, then you're caught up in that emotion and you're stuck in these emotional reactions, and then you then you're basically just a fire hose with nobody holding it yeah. and just spurting nastiness around. He has this wonderful phrase, and I'm so glad that I stumbled. I'm so glad I had that terrible time in in first year Sydney Uni where everything just went wrong because it led me to kind of look into okay, how do I how do I get it right? You know, or how do I start to feel like it's it's on track. But Eckhart Tolle's got this sort of wonderful thing that I wanted to get tattooed because, you know, when you, like, come to any kind of spiritual awakening, you're just like, this is a great idea if I got this tattooed on my body forever, which, thank God, I didn't. But it was um, Watch the Thinker where it's exactly that, where you are your thinking self but you're also your watching self. And I remember reading that and I was like, watch the thinker. What, what does he mean? And it goes on to sort of explain. It's like just for a minute just observe the thoughts that are in your, that are in your mind and you realise that there's a higher you and that's the you that you want to try and tap into. And so I'm sitting on the train out in Penrith or wherever I am, you know, da-dunk, 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 da-dunk. And I was just for a minute I'm like, okay, I'm just going to see what happens. And it was like this moment of like, oh, fuck. He's right. And I, you only managed to do it for, a, I mean, it wasn't even a second. And I still can't do it for any longer than that, really. Um, but, yeah, I think for me that was like, okay, I sort of, it was a new way of sort of understanding, yeah. you know, being, I guess. Not to get too deep and spiritual no, all of a sudden. but That's, you know, what, that's, we, that's what this show's about. Uh, but <laughs> so you have this, uh, uh, it's, it's extraordinary, you know, the parallels here because I, I also had that situation where I, I, I dropped out of university. I felt terrible about it. Mm. But then when I found the thing that, oh, I actually really like this, I worked so fucking hard I would sleep on the studio floor because I just didn't, you know, when I got into radio, I was like, I don't ever want to have that feeling again. I'm just going to work as hard as I can at this. Mm. Why, why journalism though? What was it that brought you there? Um, I think I always... I was always very engaged um, as a kind of a young young kid. I remember being in class once and the teacher would kind of went around the room and she's like, okay, tell us some of the programs that you all watched last night on the TV. Um, and, you know, it was this and that and this and that. And I said... Neighbours. Yeah, you know, home and away or whatever. With the nanny, that was something that was definitely in, in yeah. like the 90s. Um, and I remember saying the news... And the teacher was like, the news? And everyone was like, the news? 
you watch the news? And I'm like, yeah, I watch the news. Don't you guys watch the news? Um, and they didn't watch the news. But I always just did watch the news. I actually enjoyed watching the news. Um, Early Lee Len or? Uh... <laughs> okay, it was commercial television news, oh, okay. if we're being completely honest. Um, and then maybe the ABC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. But then that, that's but then I went for top notch. I was like, no, nah, we're going SBS, mate. We're going yeah. straight to the straight to the pool room. Um, and I always was just super engaged with it, and I was just like, I can I can do that. Mm. That'd be fun. That'd be interesting. That'd be you know, yeah. Because in this age where anyone can publish anything anywhere, and if you say the an outrageous enough thing, heaps of people will watch it, and then the more people that watch it, then it kind of kind of becomes true. Doesn't necessarily mean it is, mm. but um, w- what are some w- what are some things that because you did go to university, it kind of internet was around, but it wasn't anywhere near what it is now. It was still Web one point There were still gatekeepers as far as who could publish what. My God, we had um, internet surfing classes. Yeah, in nineteen ninety seven, that's we had these big computers in our internet room, and everybody was given half an hour to surf the internet, and you could look up whatever it is that you wanted. Um, and so I said, sorry, this is a slight tangent, but I said to a friend of mine, I was like, I was like, we can look up anything, anything, Lillian. And so, of course, we looked up Mark Wahlberg in Calvin Klein underwear. Natch. Um, and there's all these images of Mark Wahlberg in Calvin Klein underwear, and I was like, well, we better print because we don't know when we're going to get this opportunity again. And so we printed like... The printer was just like, ah, ah, ah. And one of the, te- the teachers was like, what, who, who's, who's printing? This is a surfing class, not a printing class. And walks over to the printer and pulls out these Mark Wahlberg. And they were black. We printed them on Microsoft Word, for God's sake. Like they were black and white, yeah. pixelated, yeah. you know, Mark Wahlberg and, his, and, and the teacher, Mr. Crispin, who is printing pornography confiscates all of them and we get three afternoon detentions. They write a letter home to my parents saying that I was looking up inappropriate material on the internet and that was the most trouble I have ever gotten in. What was your punishment? Yeah, three afternoon detentions. Where I had from to your s- parents though? No, oh, from my parents. My parents were like, what, what were you looking up? And I said, it was, it was Mark Wahlberg. And I had all these posters on my wall, for God's sake. I said, it was just a poster. Mm. You know, we, I just looked up that poster and then printed it and that was it. And my mum was pissed because she had to pick me up at 5.30 instead of, you know, mm. had to drive out there and get in the car and drive home. It was like, like a huge inconvenience to her <laughs> driving, you know. Yeah, but Mark Wahlberg. So I guess, you know, what I, what I wanted to know is that at university, what, what are some things that they – I guess I'm for me, news um, literacy and media literacy is a very important thing in our society, as is science literacy. Mm. Um, but I guess, you know, you've got to go through your news literacy first. What are the sort of things that you learn as a journalism student that, you know, around telling stories and sourcing of facts and, you know, ethical reporting? Um, I think you learn, well, one, you learn how to structure a piece. I think you learn to very quickly um, be incredibly concise and determine exactly what the facts of the piece are and how to get them out there. I think sourcing is really important. Um, Who is saying it? Why are they saying it? 
um, how do we know that they are that what they are actually saying is the truth? Because you could get you could get politicians, for example, saying whatever it is that they want to say, and they're credible because you know they're in our parliament and they're dressed in a suit and they're very well spoken and they're saying X, Y, and Z. But I think you have to learn to look um, a lot further than just what is being said and by whom it's being said. Um, I think the real difference between being a you know journalist again, I'm doing the quotation marks. I don't know why. I don't think I needed to do quotation marks there. But is that you're held to some kind of an uh, account, right? Like if you if you report on something and it's wrong, you've got people can complain to the journalist union or they could complain to a higher body that looks after the way in which reporting is done. You know, they can complain to SBS and it would be a formal complaint and SBS would have to reply to that. And then SBS gets hauled before Senate estimates and they say, why have you gotten so many complaints? You know, there's these rules and regulations that you're held to, um, which I think are really important because if you're just some rogue operator, and I'm not saying that necessarily being a rogue operator is bad. I think in a lot of ways it's good. Um, but there needs to be some kind of standard that you can hold people to and say, okay, hang on, I think you're wrong and I think that there needs to be a higher sort of body looking into this and looking into why you're wrong. How now as a journalist do you compete with people who are like, well, I don't actually want to believe what you have to tell me, Jan Fran, about what's happening in Sudan because over here on Facebook it tells me those people who are fleeing are all coming for my beautiful children and they want to kill them, so fuck them even though it's just a meme printed by some idiot in yeah. Tennessee? Um, I think that there's a lot more onus of responsibility on the user and the consumer to, um, you know, uh, to kind of to discern what's right and what's wrong, right? Like if you get all your news from Facebook, that's totally fine. I don't think, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, but so, for example, after Trump won, right, I had an existential crisis, um, not necessarily because it was Trump that won, but it was because everything that we thought was true was not true. Everything that we thought was right was not right. All of the sources that we believed didn't actually know what they were talking about. Um, and that, that, that came as a real sort of big kind of shock, I think, to a lot of people. That's where the shock of it really lies. Um, and so I unfollowed every single person from my Facebook feed I've told everyone this as well so no one could get angry with me. Every single person was unfollowed. Um, and I thought to myself, okay, what does the Facebook page of my ideological opposite look like? If I had to build this page from scratch, I would just want to know what people who completely disagree with me are looking at and where they're getting their information from. So I started following all of these organisations and news outlets and people and personalities and pages and that were, you know, on the complete other end of the political spectrum just to see what people were saying and thinking and feeling. Um, and on some level there was bits of it where I was like, okay, I, I actually understand where they're coming from. And it did this really important thing to me in that it brought me much closer to understanding, but also it really helped refine my position, but also check for holes in my position. Like there were positions that I held that I was like, actually, this person on the other side of the equation is making quite a good point that I can't counter. Maybe I need to look at why I have held those beliefs for so long. 
you know? So it really made me kind of introspect what it was that I believed in, where I was getting my information from. And when you're friends with the same people who were sharing the same thing over and over and over again, that you are absolutely going to get confirmation bias. And that's really dangerous because it stops you from being able to to kind of develop that bridge of understanding. Because, I, and I'll give you a kind of an example with the, with the same-sex marriage postal survey. If somebody was to say to me that, oh, you know, they're, they're voting no, initially my initial kind of visceral reaction would be like, oh, is that person a homophobe, right? That's kind of just that initial split second of a reaction that I would sort of have. And then I would have to kind of check myself and be like, why, what, what is it about that person that's going to lead them to vote no? What do they value rather than what do they hate? Because they value lots of things, right? And, you know, it may come across that, okay, well, they, they don't like gay people or they don't like gay marriage. And, and I, on some level, I believe for people who voted no, that's true. But I think I was much more interested in, okay, what, what are their values and how is it that, because I, you know, believe that it's right that, every Australian should be treated equally under Australian law. And by virtue of who you are, you shouldn't be treated any differently to anyone else. I believe that that's the right position to hold. And so I was always like, how can I, in my belief that this is correct, how do I reach out to people that don't believe that? What's missing? Where's the bridge? Um, and I think the bridge kind of comes from under, trying to understand their position so that you can change it. How do you, as someone who is in a, a high-profile um, of uh, you know you have you have you have an amplified mouthpiece mm. of of where you are where you work. How do you watch for putting your own bias into? Do you double check yourself? Oh yeah, um, very much. And I I'm almost really grateful for Facebook and the instant feedback that comes from it. And people are just call bullshit when they see it, and I like that. I'm not afraid of being called out on my shit. And I think that that's kind of how you get better, you know. Um, I kind of try and see, I kind of try and tell shit as I see it. And I generally like to think that, okay, if I'm seeing it this way, it's because I've done my research and I'm informed and I feel like there, there are things that are worth talking about. And so that's why I do it. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm always checking myself as much as I possibly can. And it's unfortunately the medium is sometimes the message, isn't it, you know? Like how much can you check yourself in four hours when that's all you have to write a script and it's a daily... Like my the stuff that I put out is from concept to publish is maybe eight hours. You know, it starts from nothing. So you're writing and it's like, okay... You have to be very, very concise and you have to, when in doubt, leave out. It's the, it's the thing I learned in journalism school, 1001. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I love the, the instant loop of feedback and people calling, mm. calling bullshit, especially I really love people who really kind of get into why they believe something is wrong and write you a whole thing and it's researched and it's well thought. I get a lot of those and I welcome those with open arms like that's, you know, I think that that's a good thing. You mentioned one thing that uh, I'm just, I just want to be clear about it. You, uh, just to go back a, a second, you when, you, when you encountered something that you were confronted by, you looked to see what is their argument. Uh, it's kind of valid. I can't actually argue against that. 
then why do I believe what I believe? It was that just wanted to be clear that that's what you were saying before. Yeah, sort of. Um, I'm trying to think of, of an example where that's. Because that's just a, that's what you're what you're describing though is an extraordinarily brave thing. It's as brave as the you know watch the thinker. It's as brave as that. It's am I prepared to let go of this thing that I stand upon? Am I prepared to step away from this place where I view the world and and maybe look over here and suddenly see things that I I haven't seen yet? I'm absolutely prepared to yeah. do that. But a lot of the people, not a lot of people are. Like even the idea of what you described earlier, unfollowing everyone from your Facebook feed and then following the polar opposites suddenly to be exposed to a stream of non-stop mm. messages that hurt your inner soul is I mean a lot of people don't want that over their breakfast in the morning no that's right but that's but that's okay because you're my approach was like I know what's going to happen I know I'm going to get a deluge of you know and there are still certain pages that I can't bring myself to follow because it's just absolute vitriol that's not what I'm going to engage in there's levels of you can have a level of debate down here or you can have it up here I'm not having it down here that's not entering my orbit, right? Um, but I knew the sorts of things that I was going to get and that I was going to be challenged and that I was going to be angry and that I was going to be frustrated, but that's okay because it sort of I, – I didn't allow it to permeate my sort of sense of self or anything like that. Mm. And I'm okay to say I'm wrong. Like, I'm, 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 my God, if you can't say that, you don't, you don't grow, you don't go anywhere. Like you don't. Where are you going to go? You know, you you, st- you you've got these beliefs over here, and if you are constantly thinking that these beliefs are are right, and in no way trying to improve yourself or trying to you know um, let new people and new information in, where do you, where are you going to go? You're going to remain that person, and the world's going to change around you. And it's only going to get more frightening. And it's only going to get more frightening. That's right. And you're going to retreat further and further back. And I think I think that's I think that's really that's that's the scary thing. You know, you say to me that like, oh, it's scary to kind of be to put yourself out there and to kind of be deluged by all of these different opinions. The scarier thing is to not do that. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that though, because um, during the same-sex marriage debate, I was putting on on like Instagram and Twitter. I was you know just throwing just you know these things called facts about yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know published surveys, uh, scientifically researched, backed up papers by credible universities about absolute true suicide risk among young Australians if this was a no vote and, and you know, the absolute accountable suicide attempts um, uh, based on exactly discrimination and, and, and um, stigma. And people would just start, again, they would, as you mentioned, just start essays. I don't know who's got the time to write an essay on a phone because Instagram you can only access through a phone really. Mm. Um, Oh, on Instagram? Yeah. Uh, I keep politics out of Instagram. Oh, mate. Mate, I want fashion, I want food, I want fitness, I don't want politics on Instagram. Yeah. No, no. Right. But yes. Probably for 10 people that were just absolutely holding on, um, maybe two would say, or you know what, one would say, I didn't think of it that way. Mm. Everyone else was just so staunch in their bunker. But you know what? That's okay. That's okay. If if that is in fact the case, if one person said, I didn't think of it that way, job well done. Like you're not here to change a thousand people's minds. If you can change one person's mind just by doing that, then you're good. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, that's the biggest joy I get is that sometimes when people well, – I have these these two people who – constantly comment on my stuff 
and but they but they make good points. They they genuinely do. And um, I did this video on um, I think it was about Trump, and just how I think we need to to kind of I don't know if you'd heard this story, but he was feeding fish in Japan, and the thing was that he dumped the whole box of fish food into this carp pond in Japan and it was a disgrace and look at him being petulant and and it transpired very clearly afterwards because there was a video that the Japanese Prime Minister had done the exact same thing literally 15 seconds before Trump did. Um, So it was this very kind of clear petty reporting around Trump that didn't actually happen. It wasn't true. It was actual fake news. And I remember saying, I I remember this, the, the, the piece that I did was like, we've got to lay off Trump and stop making shit up about him because when we do, he's got every reason to start declaring things to be fake news because it's fake news, right? And I, I had one of the people contact me and he's like, I never thought that I would hear something from you that I agreed with. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, uh, if I don't know if you would then. Uh, possibly don't listen to the two dollop podcasts that they did back-to-back about Trump. It's Fucking heavy. I don't listen to the dollop at all. Is that a couple of people have looked at me like that? They've looked at me the exact way you just looked at me. They've now. Is there a reason why? Yes, because I think I don't like two friends riffing about shit. It's not my vibe. Okay. And I think that there are so many in jokes that they do, and so much fake laughing. And I, I'm like, you're not really laughing. You're fake laughing. Okay. You've heard this before. You're pretending you haven't. All right. My look was <laughs> just so, to, because, you know, you, you've known me for, you know, 52 minutes. What um, have I said? I'm sorry. No, no, no. My, my look was the same look when people tell me they haven't seen Back to the Future. My look is I wish I could be you so I could have the experience of listening it to the first time. Do you want to know something? Yeah. I haven't seen Back to the Future. Oh, my God. <laughs> it is one of the most perfectly written films ever made. Never seen it. Never seen any it of them. It is one of the most perfectly written films ever made. Maybe I should. Rick and Morty would not exist if it weren't for Back to the Future. Right. Rick is Professor yeah. Emmett Scott. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's who he is. Okay. Uh, Emmett I'll... Brown, Dr. Brown. Um, sorry, Everett Scott. I was thinking of um, Rocky Horror Picture So show. you like the dollop, obviously. I do. Yeah. I do like the dollop because I like the way that I they. Uh, it's basically revisionist history. Mm. Uh, not revisionist. You have a revisionist Hardcore, history. Yeah. It's it's not quite Dan Carlin. Okay. But Dan Carlin's fucking amazing. Yeah. If you have six hours. Oh, <laughs> you know. well, I'm on holiday. Oh, all right, right. Let's go for a six-hour walk. Yeah. His um. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History is what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the start of this year when he did Countdown to Armageddon about the – oh, no, two years ago. Two years ago when he did the Countdown to Armageddon, the start of the World War One stuff is mind-boggling. And the stuff about Genghis Khan is just incredible. The Wrath of Khan, he called it, because he's awesome. See, that I would listen to. Yeah. They're three hours each yeah. and there's eight of them or something. And he, it's just him going for it. Um, but the um, – the, the the dollop stuff on Trump, um, j- just as 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 a repository of facts that they say allegedly at the start of because you know they don't want to get sued, but as a repository of facts about his life and the things he did and the kind of things that are, he is quoted as saying, 
you kind of go, oh, of course we're here. Of course we are here. Mm. Uh, Of course, you know, and it does tell us, for me, I mean, when I look at it, it tells me a lot about having lived in America and lived in bubbles of Los Angeles. Oh, of course. You know, right. No wonder he got voted in because he's the guy that everyone went, finally, someone like me. Right. Yeah. Should I should I do it? Should I listen? I think should you I should. Do it? Yeah, okay. it's only like it's like three episodes ago. Is the ones before they did their Australian tour. Um, like I said, I'm I'm so happy to be proven wrong. Three hundred, uh, three episode three hundred A and B. So four episodes ago. Okay. Yeah, I was um, I was uh, like I said, I was on location away from proper internet, so I've been on a, I've been bereft of podcasts oh, sure. for okay. for a while. Yeah. Um, so you. Speak, speaking of, of Trump, oh, speaking of, is, is it a work day for you? No, oh, I'm on holidays. Ace, all right. Mate, we're going to be here for four well, do hours. Need, do you need to be anywhere? Because no. you were early, which I'm stoked about. I, I was early, yeah, that's right. Do you want me to call your mom and say, hey, she was um, early, 15 minutes? Hey, sure. I like to be punctual. I'm super punctual that I get here. That's great. Even, yeah. I was going to hang out. Just I'm like, maybe I should just hang out outside and, and just knock on the door exactly at 10.30. But I'm like, yeah, I'll just knock it's on the door. It's pretty nice. It's a couple, like if you want like an $18 smoothie, you can pop down the road and get one. It's about that big. Um, <laughs> but it's served to you by someone who actually has the Eckhart Tolle tattoos on their forearms. Oh, yeah. okay. You know, I think I'm happy with this free tea. <laughs> Thank you. I'm okay. You're in the $18 smoothie capital yeah. of the world out here. No, thanks. Across the road from the $16 acai bowl. Yeah. So, you know, it's... Uh, okay, good to know. It's, it's pretty happening down the street. Yeah, good to We know. live in this small apartment yeah. uh, in, in the midst of these houses owned by millionaires. Mm. <laughs> it's just kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, so on the, on the Trump thing, you um, have spent some time in Trump's America mm. quite recently, actually. How did you find it? Um, look, I think Trump's America is a kind of an interesting way of putting it. Like I love America. Let me declare that publicly. I think it's just, it's one of the most, it's the most fascinating country on earth. All right. There it is. Um, it's enormous and it's so diverse and you could be in one part of the country and it would be a completely different vibe to another part of the country. Um, so there's so many tiny Americas in this one big thing and they're all amazing and they all have this, you know, amazing, great story. Um, it's, anxious there's like a it's like everybody's just a little bit anxious even the trump voters and people who are on board with you know trump and his message there's just a bit of anxiety there it's like a slow simmering kind of dull roar of anxiety and i think probably it's the anxiety that i was probably feeling in that all of these things that we thought were true and right are not true and right then what is true and right you know it's like America is collectively going, what is truth? You know what I mean? Mm. You know when you have those days where you're like, I'm having an existential crisis. What does it mean to be mm. a human? You know, it's sort of that vibe. Um, it's, yeah, and, and I don't know whether it's because, you know, social media is such a thing now that it wasn't in the last election when Obama was elected the second term, but everything's so polarised you know, it seems it's like we were in Alaska and we were, you know, at the airport in Anchorage and this was after a long shoot and we were, I was like two Bloody Marys down, you know, and getting ready to tell some people about some politics 
And, you know, a friend of mine was like, you can't, you can't say that here, you know. It's almost like you can, you can look around and you can almost pinpoint the people that you think would think this way and people that you think would think that way. And I don't know if that's a good thing. Um, but, yeah, it's, it certainly felt a lot, a lot. I was there just before Trump won in October. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. For, um, 2016, and I was there again in October 2017, and there's definitely a different vibe in the air. Like I, we were heading to the south, um, down to Louisiana, and our and I and I'd gone with the same cameraman in 2016, and then again in 2017, um, Adam Rosenberg, and I remember thinking to myself just before our 2017 trip to the south, I was like, Is anyone going to give him grief because he's Jewish? And it had never occurred to me to think that in 2016. And now in 2017, it's suddenly this thought that, and it was, you know, it was very fleeting and I was like, no, that's ridiculous. You know, there was like this moment where I was like, maybe we should just get him to say, oh, my name's Adam, well, something else. Roberts was a fairly common one. Adam Roberts. I'm like, no, I'm not, no, God damn it, that's not his name. And I'm not even going to entertain the thought of him having to change it just in case, you know, there was some kind of safety issue. And, of course, there wasn't. It was perfectly fine. But I had that thought Mm. in 2017 and I didn't give it another thought. You know, I I hadn't even thought about it in the slightest just one year ago. So I think, yeah, there's a kind of anxiety that's simmering. Mm. Um, And, you know, when you see people chanting in Charlottesville with tiki torches saying Jews will not replace us. That's fucked up. You know what I mean? Fancy seeing that on your television. That's not cool. And you would feel a sense of foreboding or uncertainty, you know? And and it's almost like if that had happened a year ago, or, or five years ago, everybody would be like, get the fuck off the streets. Whereas now people are talking about free speech. You know? Like, no, no, Nazis have a right. They had a permit <laughs> and they have a right to say Jews will not replace us in the streets very in Charlottesville. Very fine people, Jan. Very, very fine, fine people. people. Very fine people. Some of them are very fine people. Can you blame people for having a sense of anxiety or can you blame me for thinking twice about whether my Jewish cameraman is going to be okay in a place like that if someone's going to say some shit to him? You know? Yeah. Um, 
man, all is well that ends well. And I hope there's a part of me that's like, I just want this man to do well because and there's a lot depending on it. Frank. Sorry. Just the interlude from Trumpism. Yeah. I think he was just anxious about yeah. the future of, the, of humanity. <laughs> well, you were down there doing, down there, up there. Wherever you were, you know, mm. if, if we approached Earth from another point in the galaxy, it would be over there. Mm-hmm. Um, you were doing a pretty heavy story. Um, yeah. Speaking of anxiety, how do you, when faced with the overwhelming waterfall of, of facts, how do you deal with going home at the end of the day going, I just covered a story about potentially, because you were down there doing a story about um, climate change refugees in the States. Um how do you deal yourself personally with like, fuck, now I know all this stuff. I can't unknow it. Um, yeah. It, <laughs> after that, I'm like, oh, I, I have this. We had a really hot day in Sydney once. It was like 43 degrees. And there was this moment of like, oh, I think, are we fucked? And I'd never felt that. I'd always sort of, you know, that was climate change is something that is um, very pertinent and something that we should be looking into um, immediately and all the rest of that. But I had never felt this idea of like the repercussions of what happens if we don't try and address this problem. Um, And it's huge. But I think think with all things like, you know, um, like Me Too, for example, the hashtag Me Too, which I've been thinking about quite a lot recently, I think sometimes problems can be so overwhelming and so multifaceted and so global that you feel like, well, what can we do? There's nothing that we can do. Um, but there is. And it can be the tiniest thing. And you can, in your own way, contribute by using less plastic. Buy a fucking keep cup. Like, you know, I'm not here to sit on my moral high horse. I f- did not have a keep cup yesterday, okay? And I have a plastic bottle in my car. I do. Um, but these are tiny things that we can change to, in some way, go towards improving you know, um, the future of the planet. If you believe in renewables, lobby for renewables. Write to your local member and say, we want you to be investing more in renewables. We would like the government to be, that's where we want our focus, you know. Um, yeah, I think that there's, I think you've got to you've got to kind of switch that around and say, okay, rather than look top down, what can happen, you've kind of got to look bottom up and say, okay, what what is it that I can do in my own sort of small way? Um, is that enough for you? It has to be enough <laughs> because you, yeah, because if, 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 if not that and you don't find a solution, I went to a high school, this is me, I'm like getting philosophical now, but my high school was um, run by the Sisters of St. Joseph, who was the order of Mary MacKillop, right? And we used to have this thing where they would say to us almost every assembly and it was the most lame thing back then where they would say, you can't do everything, you can't do nothing but you can do something. That was Mary McKillop's mantra. And because you would hear, I mean, I was six years at this high school, because you would hear it day in, day out at assembly, I was always like, boring, this again. And it wasn't until super recently that I kind of found myself applying it to so many aspects of life where it's like, you can't do everything, but you can't do nothing. You have to do something. And, yeah, that is enough. And I think that that is the way to go. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, yeah. that's, that, you know, that's a that, – because it is something that I, I struggle with a lot, right. uh, certainly around, you know, 
big stuff like that, certainly around climate change. Um, I could barely watch that documentary that you mm. did because it was just so full on for me. To, so I remember being in Miami in 2011. I remember looking around going, fuck, they really, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. uh, if, if no one's ever been there, I think like most of the city of Miami is within about 70 centimetres of the high tide mark. Yeah. Yeah. It's not even a metre. Like it's a storm swell from going under. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the guy you interviewed had a really – he had a great, great quote, the ex-fisherman down there. He's like, look at these houses. These are people with millions of dollars. You'd think they'd be smarter. Right. <laughs> but, you know, and here's the thing though. It's like you can't – you can't – it is like he who shall not be named, he or she. We don't have to put a gender on climate change. Because the minute you start – you mention that word or that phrase, um, yeah, climate change or global warming, people stop investing in Miami. So they've taken this approach of being like, no, no, it's just, it's just a couple of storms, okay? Yeah, it's just, just a little bit of flooding that's heightened. We're going to raise the roads. It's going to be fine. There's no climate change here. It's all good, you know? Um, because I think that genuinely if you, if you actually stared at that problem straight in the face and said, okay, this is the problem that we have, the sea levels are rising, uh, they're getting much warmer, um, people would go, well, I'm not going to invest in Miami and and you drive you know down the major highways in in that city and there are cranes everywhere mm. I mean there's some money going into Miami right so the last thing you want to do is scare off investors by saying that we've got this <laughs> global problem that we're probably going to have to endure or deal with for the next 20 50 years you know yeah. um yeah I'm still I, I, my mind spins about the politicization of climate change because it's like, listen, man, either the oceans are getting warmer or they're not, right? And if they're getting warmer, then that's bad. And if an incredibly large majority of the scientific community say they're getting warmer, I'm inclined to believe, right? It's it sort of it, it spins my mind as to how. What's the argument against it? Mm. Maybe, maybe that people are using, and this is one of one of the things that I've tried to do as well with climate change is is try and get into the mind of someone who is um, skeptical. And I think for the most part, they're not skeptical of the science; they're skeptical of the people who are dry, who are really pushing climate change. So they're skeptical of Jay Weatherall, for example, from South Australia, who wants renewables because he's politicizing it, you know. Um, so I think they're more sort of sceptical of, of people in and around climate science and what are they going to get out of talking about climate science? You know, what are they going to – what's NASA getting out of it that they're, you know, not wanting to tell the rest of us? Um, and I think that it, I think that there's a, a degree of scepticism is good in all aspects of life. But you've got overwhelming evidence that has been – people have been talking about this for like almost a century, man. Like it's not like – you know, it's not like in the 80s someone decided to make Captain Planet a thing and then the, you know, the issue of climate change was it. Like there have been scientists who have been warning about this for decades and decades. Mm. I think the first article, it wasn't like 1912 or something? Oh, I, I'm, I, I don't know the exact date. Something, it's something it's, like that. It uh, uses the words, um, um, uses the word carbon dioxide acts as a blanket around the earth. 
1912, I think it was published. I mean, I, I very much would not be surprised by that. Mm. That's 100 years ago that people have been yeah. saying this is an issue. Yeah. What, do you, what, like, what, what, what else do you want? Yeah, but to use what your model of earlier, how do you get into the minds of, you know, how, because, you know, I mean, to, I often look at the, um, the, the bike paths in the Netherlands as an object of when political will uh, of the people met uh, a problem faced by a country. The bike paths in Amsterdam, which now has 40,000 kilometres of bike paths and cycling is, is like the way of life in Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Utrecht. It's fucking it's adorable. In fucking incredible place. Yeah. I, I worked there for a while. Fucking awesome. Didn't exist in the 60s. It was a combination of the OPEC oil crisis, which drove gas prices up and gas rationing was so intense, they started having um, car-free days on Sunday. It's like, okay, we need to save the amount of gas that we're getting into the country, we can't all drive on Sundays, okay? That'll save us a lot. So suddenly these town squares that had been turned into car parks, people are out walking around again going, oh, that's right, the square. It's really mm. nice. The square's been here for hundreds of years. Oh, we're walking up to, you know, my friend Bass's house. Hey, Bass, how you doing? Yeah, pretty good. Um, and that combined with the um, when the car, there was an economic uh, boom in the Netherlands after World War II, so a lot more people were buying cars and heaps of kids were getting hit by cars and right. killed. There was a kid dying every week uh, getting hit by cars on the roads. And so they went, okay, we're really enjoying walking around and riding our bikes again. We don't want kids to die anymore. Let's build some bike paths. And that was in the late 60s and then it started and then pushed it. There was big sit-ins everywhere and, they, and then started in the 70s. So... I'd like to think there'll be a moment where even the opposition, even the people mm. who are worried about Jay Weatherall, mm. who's fucking best name ever if you're into climate science, <laughs> yeah. um, see it's in his name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very there, serendipitous, that one. That, yeah. there will, that there will be a point where that even those, not necessarily Malcolm Robertsy, but those who are of, you know, just completely suspicious of everything, well, wow, look, you know, may as well. I would love for there to be bipartisanship on an issue like the climate and how we proceed, um, but I don't have very much faith when somebody like Scott Morrison and Barnaby Joyce bring a piece of coal into the Australian Parliament. Um, this idea that, you know, we're a coal-based economy, right, um, for me, it's not a question about whether we transition to renewables. Of course we transition. It's sustainable, it's clean, it's ongoing, um, it's a new industry. It's that cheaper. Has, it's cheaper. <laughs> um, there's so much scope and opportunity. It's not a question about whether we transition. How we transition, I think that that's, I think that that's worth asking because there are good ways to do it, there are right ways to do it, there are ways where you're going to affect the least amount of people because there will be job losses. There's an in, you're in transition. There's an industry that's that's closing, and there's an industry that's opening. So you're you're going to have people who are going to lose their jobs. So asking how we transition, I think, is an important question. But unfortunately, we're still at the point where we're looking into whether or not we should actually do it. <laughs> right? Yeah. And for me, it's it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I look at things that I try because, like I said, you know, this is the. That was, and I've talked about this before, but that particular subject was the, the, the big 
trigger for me that that flipped me off into psychosis and I was there for like a a while. It was fucked. Climate change? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I was absolutely 100% convinced that it was happening today. Right. And sees why this afternoon would be 10 meters higher. And I wanted to run down the street and warn people and and yeah, it was terrifying. And I I started having paranoid delusions and yeah, it was awful. It took me wow. a long time to get better. I wasn't on antipsychotics for months. Yeah. Yeah, it was 100%. Yeah, it was fucking wow, heavy, I, man. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was really heavy. Where, where does that come from? That- uh, oh, it was a, a long time coming. So I'd always right. been concerned about it, but, you know, it was as uh, – it just kind of got caught up in my OCD and the anxiety right. and stuff and then, yeah, it was – Utterly terrifying. I was having visual delusions and fuck. I can Im- I, I can imagine that if you actually thought that that was happening today, yeah. that would yeah. be. I mean, I'm t- I was talking about that hot day in in January, yeah. where I had a tiny glimpse mm. of feeling mm. like this was a real present danger. Mm. Imagine kind of yeah I, being I, in that headspace. Hundred percent. I was I was living in Venice Beach at the time, which is uh, I'm sure you've been there. Yeah. Very 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 close to the. In fact, where I was living was uh, possibly a little bit below the high tide mark because there was a sandbar between us and the ocean. Right. Uh, I was fucking terrified. And it, it lasted for months, months before I could flick that switch off in my brain. It still flicks on every now and again, but I, I know how to deal with it a lot better now. Um, so, you know, I do, I, I look around and, you know, there are, I think everyone's just waiting. You know, I'd like to think that everyone's just waiting for a country like us to do something mm. that we can then look at and go, yeah, that works. Let's give mm. that a shot or a version of that. And the the version, the thing that happened this week that I was utterly thrilled about, or oh, this week or last week, Norway, which has a, a, a $1 trillion um, uh, fund, there's a national um, retirement fund, it's, it's an incredible amount of money, a trillion dollars, um, is uh, either planning to or has already 100% divested in fossil fuels. Yeah, right. I Fucking think I did, I did hear something like that. Gigantic. And it's it's starting a thing of like, well, there's, they're, they're, and they're putting all that money. And this is a country that is incredibly susceptible to climate change. Yeah. And their entire way of life and their utter entire culture is, is susceptible. Um, but they're a white country and they're a wealthy country. And they're so a people, small-ish country as well. And so people might listen. Whereas, and I've just spent, you know, mm. my, my wife's from Fiji and you've been in Fiji, you know, there's, you know, they're a tiny country, not a very wealthy country, not white, no mm. one gives a fuck, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was funny, the, the show you did about climate change, um, you know, the, 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 the puddles all down the street in Alaska from the waters rising, all right, that, you know, I saw that in Tonga when I was in Tonga. Mm. There's entire suburbs as you fly into... Um, as you fly into uh, uh, Tuolofa, I think is the capital. We're not in Vavao in the south. There's entire suburbs like that. Like this country, this tiny little country, an entirely different way of life, a country, a culture, a language, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of really important history. So, 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 so in so danger, so much danger. Yeah. No one gives a shit. Well, that's that's the, that's the thing. It's like only when it kind of starts. This is why you know this idea of America's first climate change refugees is huge because when you think of climate change, you think you know Kiribati, you think Tuvalu, you think these kind of little Pacific island nations in the middle of massive bodies of water, but it's actually happening to the coastline of the most important 
country on earth potentially, you know, or certainly one of the most important countries on earth. Like no one is immune from this regardless of how much money you have or where it is that you sit in, yeah. you know, on, on the earth. No one's immune from it. Yeah. And I think the danger and I think what I hear a lot of in Australia is, well, if we were to cut our carbon emissions, it wouldn't make a, even a hint of difference because there's China and there's America and our carbon footprint is tiny. Um, and to me that's, that's just a rubbish argument because that's just like saying, well, if they're shit, we can be shit, you know. And it's like what contribution do you want to have? And who do we want to be? And how do we want to, you know, make our money? Um, what industries do we want to invest in? These are all questions for us. Mm. Um, and, you know, investing in ones that are clean and sustainable and cheaper, it seems like a real no-brainer. Comparing yourself to China, though, is so utterly futile. Yeah. You're talking about a country of billions of people who will their political will will change at the flick of a switch. One day they'll be coal, the next day they'll be nuclear, that's it. Boom. No more internal combustion engines, here we go. Mm. And then the rest of the world will be in the Stone Age still. And while they just eclipse, and it'll, it'll fucking happen. My, my brother lived there for a couple of years and I told, I told this story in the podcast before, um, about a month after he got there in Shanghai, the Prime Minister of India was visiting and he said, oh, they turned the sky blue today. I said, what do you mean? He goes, oh, because the Prime Minister of India is visiting, they want to make Shanghai look nice. So um, they shut off all the coal-fired power plants nearby, so five coal-fired power plants nearby. They cut all heating to government buildings and they closed the freeways for a week before he got there. So when he got there, he's like, man, look at this, blue sky. Traffic jams, people like living in their cars for four days because they were trapped, all right, because the freeways were closed. Dear God. Yeah, right? Blue sky. Indian Prime Minister's there. See, everything's rad. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. He goes, boom, they flick a switch, pfft, grey again. But that's a country that's that unreal. can do that. That sounds like pretend. But it's real yeah. and it's happening in the most economically, you know, important and militarily important country on this planet right now. Mm. Um, and that when they deci- when they do decide to go totally green, they'll, it, it'll be like you, can't, you won't even be able to remember what life was like beforehand. And then the rest of us were sitting around trying to dig up black rock from the earth to burn, mm. right? <laughs> While they are making uh, their economy is running on possibly almost free energy. We're, you know, I'm, I just hope it's not too long. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's an incredible country, fascinating country. You know, when you think about the political system and um, that only the, the 99.9% kids who went to law, like only the absolute smartest people are allowed into politics. You can't just be a blowhard who, who complains about, you know, an ethnic minority and, and get voted in on, on making people feel safe about their bigotry. No, you've got to be super fucking smart mm. to get into the, politic, the political the politburo in, in China, um, which is fucking great, which does lead me to the other thing I do want to talk to you about because yeah. you and I share a, a link to China um, through the window of If You Are The One, <laughs> which is possibly... The greatest television yeah. show I've ever seen. Yeah, it's a good show. <laughs> it's a dating show if you haven't seen it. It's a dating show. It's a little, it's similar to Take Me Out, um, which is where there's 35 or 30 girls all lined up there and, and some hapless guy shows yeah. up and tries to convince these these hot Chinese chicks to go out with him. It's so, it's one of those things where I'm like, is this a joke? Are they in on the joke? Or is this, am I the butt of the joke? What's happening here? It's so outrageous, this show, um, that I've kind of been trying to work out, like, 
exactly what it is. It's What's your current theory? I feel like there's I feel like it's a bit tongue in cheek. I feel like everybody everybody is in on the joke a little bit. It's like Eurovision. I don't know if you've ever been to Eurovision. I have not been to Eurovision. It's one of my great dreams to go to Eurovision. I've watched it countless times. Eurovision is the height of culture. I 100% agree. Yeah. Um, It's kind of one of those things where everybody there is, um, they're very serious about Eurovision, but there's, there's a little, there's like a little twinkle in everyone's eye where they sort of know that this is a bit of fun. Mm. This is a bit outrageous. This is a bit, you know, but it's very serious. Mm. You don't make fun of other people at Eurovision. You don't disrespect other countries. Um, overtly, anyway, you can do that in the voting. Do whatever, <laughs> do whatever you want in the voting. Um, France but, and Germany still giving each other nil point. Yeah, <laughs> still. don't even get started on bloody Ukraine and Russia. <laughs> oh, how that? That's like Eurovision is just the endearing, the enduring element of Europe, isn't it? This thing that has just so good, you know, has just stayed. I love it, man. Solid. I love it. Um, but yeah, yeah, it is a little bit like I guess you're you're right. It is a little bit like Eurovision. The thing about if you are the one that uh, you've met the host, haven't you? I have met the host. Yeah, yeah. I, I can never get his name right. Meng Fei. Meng Fei. Yeah. Is he like sixty or? I have no idea. All right. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't dare yeah. ask. He's twenty five, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I met him. He was. He he came to Sydney, and you know, he's. This, He's this really big deal. Like if you are a minor celebrity in China, uh, 10 million people are watching your show. Yeah. Because there's so many people. Like we forget the scale that, that exists in this country, right, where it's just like, no, only like 1% of the country watches. It's like, oh, that's 100 million people or so, something. My math is probably off, but that is yeah. a very significant amount of people. Yeah. Um, and I think there was this – I was reading one of the press releases and they were like, this is a show watched by 55 million people. Like that's bloody twice our population. Yeah, that's almost three times our population on an average night. On an average night, on a boring Wednesday night. Yeah. I'm like, what kind of scale is this? Yeah, I mean, we get about the same numbers for the feed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what what I well, there's two things I love about if you are the one. I I it's always this kind of it's this the dream that. Like I've never seen one where it's a hot dude where like 10 out of 10 would bang. It is always a guy who's just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. No, he's not quite. He's got a few kangaroos short of the top paddock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the you know, the, 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 the women are all so extraordinarily, you know, Babes. unattainable. Mm. Unattainable. So out of the boys' league. And they ask all these really, if we were going on a date, where would you take me? You know, yeah. <laughs> he's just some guy who doesn't know how to dress himself. You know, but I love the backstories when they when they show them, you know, working and 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 doing it as they as they're building their as they come to the show. Mm-hmm. Um, All the quirks that they have, yeah. You know, if they play any weird video games, which they usually always, always. do. Always. Mm-hmm. But I also love how at least three times an episode, there's just that subtle kind of I was working in Korea, but. I was thinking, why am I putting all my energy into making Korea strong? I'm coming back to China because strong China makes me feel strong and that's why I'm here. At least three times a show, that message gets in. Very much so. It's like this 
hang on, this isn't a fucking yeah. dating show. Yeah. This is, uh, you know, this is just a just a reminder. You yeah. are devoted to the state. <laughs> well, I imagine that there, that would just be there would just be so many things like yeah. that in China where it's just like, oh, this is this is just a normal vending machine. Yeah. And then it just like you know it's vending communist propaganda or whatever it is. <laughs> like I just imagine that would just happen so often in China. Yeah. Um, and people wouldn't even bat an eyelid, but because it's like for us, we're like, what? You're coming for the future of China? Okay. And then you're like, oh, right, they're under a very stringent communist regime. I forget about that. Yeah, and it's a, a monocultural, homogeneously, uh, I think, what, 98% of the country is one particular ethnicity. Really? Yeah. My God, they've got Uyghurs there. There's 23 million of them. Yeah, it's humongous. And that, that's all over in the West, that stuff. The, the Really? I thought China was a lot more diverse no, than that. No, it's not. Chin is the ethnicity, I think. Q, Q I N, Q U I N. I sometimes wonder what it would be like growing up in a um, homogenous mm. culture. Long way from Bankstown High School. Long way, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it's such a foreign concept to me. I couldn't even I couldn't even picture what that would feel like. Well, I think that's the great fallacy about Australia is that people think we're a homogenous, you know, a monocultural society. Mm. We're fucking not. But no, God no. But the you know, you turn on your telly and that's what you think it is. You know, and I, you know. I, I think there's like a prevailing orthodoxy, or a majority of people who probably have roots in in Britain. Yeah, um, which, what is it? Two out of three Australians, or one out of three Australians has one parent born overseas. Yeah, I think it's something like that. Very, yeah. very high numbers. It's humongous. Yeah, it's humongous. Um, but you know, I, I'm happy to see that in my career in television, which started in 1999, um, I'm happy to see that it's 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 becoming less white. What when you turn on the telly? Mm. Which is nice because it's in, you know it's it's basically the forced um, unfollowing and refollowing of people that are different from you on Facebook. It's the actually you shouldn't be so terrified when you go to the shops and see you know Sudanese people because there's fucking tons of them mm. and they've come here because we're a country that looks after people or we fucking try to when we're not killing their dogs in front of them. Um, you know where. You know, we're a country that has looked after people and always looked after people and, you know, we, you know, offer people who are, you know, seeking refuge a safe place to be and we have done since, you know, white people first showed up. But if you don't see that, you're not going to know it. And so when you do see it, it's going to scare you. Yeah. You know, it's going to frighten you. And yeah. I, I remember when we first, when they, when SBS did that first season of um, Go Back to Where You Came From, we had uh, one of the people on the show um, come into the radio station. I was doing breakfast at Today at the time and... She goes, oh yeah. If I see, if I see one, that's how she said it. If I see one in the shopping aisle, I won't go down that aisle. I don't, I wouldn't even walk past them. And I thought, well, fuck, man, how frightening would the world be to you? Right. Of course, you're going to react weirdly and say stuff and yell and be angry on Facebook because you're terrified and you're trying to protect yourself. Mm. You know. So it's just, a, I'm happy to have seen and seeing more and more. And of course, it could be way more. Way more women, way more you know people who aren't white male middle class hetero people right. on telly. Yeah, um, you know, as a whole, you know, I'd love you know I'm happy to see you know more of it. I like. I think representation is important. I have sometimes the word diversity tends to sort of get overused, and you, you sort of tend to kind of forget exactly what it is that we're talking about and why we're sort of talking about it. Um, but representation, I think, is really important. And I've always just thought it was, again, sort of a bit of a no-brainer that our screens should, you know, Australian screens should reflect Australia. 
Mm. Um, I don't think that that's a um, that's a big ask necessarily. Um, and you know, growing up, when I I remember being in, at university and wanting to go into kind of journalism and wanting to go into TV journalism and just not even considering any of the commercial networks because I'm a Lebanese girl with curly hair, you know, and olive skin. I don't have blonde hair. I'm not white. I don't have, you know. Um, and it's and so and it wasn't even like, a, oh, I feel sorry for myself. It was just a given. It was like, well, there's no point, right, which is probably not the right way to kind of go about it. You should you should put your hat in the ring at all times, and I would say that now looking back. Mm. But that's sort of what went through my head was just this idea, well, that's not for me. Um, and fuck that. <laughs> Fuck that. Why is that for you and not for me? Yeah. Why am I feeling like this is actually somewhere that I can't that I can't be or that I'll have much less of a chance of um, getting into because of the way I look? That's fucked. Um, and, you know, and I'm someone, as we mentioned this earlier, I'm ethnic light. Like I could be a Spaniard, you know. Um, but what about somebody who is very evidently from a North Asian background? Or from a South Asian background, they're from, you know, India or Pakistan or Bangladesh or somebody who is from Africa or somebody who wears the hijab. I mean, you don't even see, you don't even hear different accents on TV, right? It's like I'll sh- there's this picture that I screenshotted, which I don't want to show you because I don't want to necessarily, you know, tag like the women involved or anything like that. But it was, it was three presenters on a commercial television network and like my mind spun out because they looked exactly like the same person and I screenshotted this thing and I was like I'm sure if I show it to someone that they're not they're going to be like no they look different and I remember showing it to my husband he's like oh wow you know there's such a like a homogenous look in so much of our kind of television and it's only really starting to change. Um, I mean, SBS has always been that point of difference and that's, I guess, why it exists because it's like... It says it on the box. It says it on the box, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, that's what we do, bitch. Yeah. You know, um, we're not jumping on the bandwagon. We built the bandwagon, baby, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, but I think the ABC is kind of cottoning onto that and a, a, a number of the other networks are because because it matters to those people who are leaving university and saying to themselves, oh, well, this this place over here is not for me. That's not the message that I want out there for, for graduates now. Mm. No. You know, I want to be able to tell them that you can apply for anything and do anything and be anywhere just like anybody else whose look and accent and skin colour is different because you're all, we're all the fucking same. We're all as legit Australian as the next man, you know. Or woman. Or woman. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's sort of why I think it's, it's really important. And, um, like, Home and Away for me was I wasn't allowed to stay at my boyfriend's place. Excuse me. No, no, no. That was never going to happen. I didn't surf. I didn't live anywhere near the beach. You know, I didn't, I didn't go to a diner. I'd never set foot in a diner. Um, it wasn't I, – I, I didn't connect with that. And there's a real importance in being able to connect with stories um, that are just as legitimately Australian as Home and Away, you know? Without a doubt. There's, um, uh, she's not here right now because she's at school, but there's a, a, a 13-year-old young lady that lives here. Uh, I've known her since she was 10. She's an incredible kid. Um, I do often try to make sure that when I have um, uh, guests that aren't men here, I, I try to get them in in the afternoon so that they casually just kind of cross paths when she comes home from oh, school. Yeah. 
and just you know, oh, this is a uh, nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah, so. Oh, that's a that's a good idea. Well, a little yeah. bit of a casual interaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. that. Oh, she. Oh, yeah. She's a uh, you know. She's a, she works on Late Line. Yeah. 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 <laughs> when Alberici Al, Al, was here. Yeah. Did she yeah. know what Late Line was? Just... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, sure. but, yeah. But uh, what what would you say to a to a young uh, what would you say to a young woman who's uh, she's about to turn fourteen? What would you say to her about let's say for example uh, about turning fourteen? What would you say to her about that? Um, I would say well, I'd definitely say enjoy it. Because you turn 14 once. Um, and like I say to so many people, um, one of the super important things is um, finding your people and surround yourself with people that are going to make you feel good and right and that are going to help you grow um, and not not people that will shrivel you. Because there are all measure of people in this world. Um, I might actually even tell her an anecdote that I learned in my one of my first days of year seven at my high school. God, my high school is representing today, isn't it? What's the name of it? God love him. Oh, it's St. John of the Joseph of Madeleine MacGillop. Uh, sure. I was close, wasn't yeah. I? Yeah. It's uh, Mount St. Joseph's. Ah. Um, we, you know, they had all of the year sevens in a room and this was when we were just, it was orientation week. We'd just been there and they said, you know, let's just imagine you were a fruit. If you're an apple, there are going to be people in this world that don't like apples. It's not their thing. They don't like apples. They don't want to eat apples. They don't want to be around apples. So you have the option of then trying to change and become a banana. But there are going to be people in this world that don't like bananas. They just don't want to be around bananas. They don't eat bananas. They don't like bananas. And so you can go through your life trying to change and trying to be all of these different fruits. There are always going to be people that don't like you, that don't dig you, that are not going to be picking up what you're putting down. So just be an apple and find the people that love apples because they're out there just as much as the ones that don't are. And I'm like, I'm going to be a pineapple. And fuck anyone that doesn't like pineapples. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. That's what I'd say. I love it. I will tell her that. I will tell Be her. Be a that. pineapple girl. So you uh, you're in on holidays, which is great. Correct. Uh, so it must be nice to have a bit of a break from what I can only imagine is a, a, a an intense work day. Mm. But uh, and having done shows like that, you've done. I there's something about them that I don't know if you love this part, but there's something about showing up, walking in the door, putting your bag down, and going, "Okay, we have half an hour of nothing." We've got eight hours to make half an hour of something. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's that's. I love that feeling. You get in. I've got my things. I like my things in. You know, get my little bottle. I've got my bold and the beautiful mug. If that goes missing, I have a all staff email. Oh, <laughs> oh, I'm I'm just cc'ing everyone who's copied into that email. Um, you get in. You open up a new file. You open up a new empty script file, and you go, okay. Now we're ready to go. You had had my coffee. I've had, yeah, I love that feeling. That feeling so full of promise. The stress kicks in a few hours later when you're like, fuck. But that's, that's I think, where I've come to just make very, my days, like it's a row of dominoes. I have, to, I have to get in, I have to pitch, I have to finish, I have to go into makeup, I have to come out, I have to do the promo, I have to give the graphics guys their thing, I have to make sure the editor knows X, Y, and Z, I have to shoot my links. And if one of those things kills over, then everyone's day is interrupted. 
the makeup lady doesn't get me at the time that she's supposed to get me. The editors don't, right? So you learn to be very, very regimented. I love routine. I'm having trouble now that I'm on holidays. Because <laughs> I'm a delinquent. <laughs> I'm a total delinquent. If I don't have routine, big, big trouble. Right. Big trouble. Yeah, I need routine. Yeah, there is something, and I, I, I learned this myself in the last month when I was away, there's something about working in a big team. Um, what's the team on, on? Maybe about 20. 20, that's pretty good. Mm. Everyone knows everyone. Mm. Yeah, that's good. We, we were on a fairly big production and so we had about. Sure. Yeah, we had about 80 people. But it really is, it's like an orchestra. It's exactly how you described. Yeah. You might be second violin, which is not the super violins. You might be third violin, which is the one that goes, eh, 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 eh. <laughs> but yeah. you're just playing the lower harmony sure. of what the first violin's going, <laughs> like the yeah. really hard shit. But if you're a quarter of a tone out, the whole orchestra, 110 people, will sound like shit. Yep. And there's something fucking cool about that. Yeah, it's really, really fucking cool. Yeah. I totally agree. And we've got, you know, our show sort of works a bit like clock. It sort of runs itself to it. Can't, you can't let it run itself for too long because... We're all delinquents. We're all we all need someone to just sort of beat us into shape every now and again. Um, but yeah, it's 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 like it's like a clockwork, and everyone plays a very key, important, vital role. Like my my stuff would be shit. I could write the most profound thing, and if it's badly edited, it looks like shit, and it doesn't. No one watch it. It won't resonate. Right? So who's more important, me or the editor? It's like, well, you're both playing these two very important roles that come into creating this thing. And I'm sure the editor, if I had the editor sitting here, she would, she would say me. But she, look, oh, no, no. She would, be, she would say, oh, I've got my cup. I've got my, you know, I've got my, uh, oh, you said bold and beautiful, so fucking brain, come on, work. I know it's early. Um, I've got another cat mug that has special cat ears okay, and of course you do. whiskers. Okay, so I've got my cat mug. And I've got my, you know, open, you know, Adobe Premiere file and, um, oh, God, this is what I've got to work with today. Fuck. <laughs> and I imagine people would get to that point. Yeah. 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 You know, so I'm, I'm, you're exactly right. And um, it's, it is great to be working on a part of a team like that. And it's, I, I mean, I've only ever really known broadcasters in industry, but, you know, when, when you're in a workflow, when you're a part of a workflow that's really well-oiled and mm. really well-designed and, and malleable and open to... Because I'm sure you get... Flexible, very flexible. I'm sure that you can be ready to lock and edit and suddenly, oh, fuck, Trump just called Jerusalem the capital. Shit! (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I should check. Has he done it yet? He was going to do it today. Oh, today. Yeah. Have mercy. (laughs) Oh, man. It's a... Having spent a fair amount of time in Israel, I'm like, what are you fucking doing, pal? Oh, I've I've not spent any time in Israel. It's an interesting place. I I can imagine. I can only, only tell you. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, not, not yet, not trending just yet. Okay. That's okay. Oh, was it Clinton Foundation? Clinton Foundation has probably come out going, you idiot. Um, I, uh, I remember hearing, I, cause I, cause I spent a fair bit of time over there. Um, and I, 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 I know quite well someone who was at the table during the peace process. Oh, um, at the, he was 27 at the time. Who is this savant? He's a guy by the name of Giddy Grinstein. He's an incredible guy. Um, he was there with, um, uh, it wasn't Sharon, it was. When was this? Oh, 90, 
was a peace accords. It was 92. It's like Rabin? Rabin. Yeah, so 93, no, something, somewhere around there. The Oslo, where they did the Oslo with yeah, um, Yas- uh, Yasser Arafat? It was just it was just after that, all right. Probably and, Zach Rabin before. And they were at the table, and they'd be taking a break, and Bill Clinton would come up to him and say, "Because uh, the, the thing that a lot of people don't a lot of people don't quite get when it comes to uh, West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem, it's literally it is house to house, street to street, all right. It's not." like we would conceive a border of, oh, the border between New South Wales and South Australia, it's 3,000 kilometres away. Mm -hmm. It's an imaginary line in a desert that you can drive across at 110 kilometres an hour on a freeway and then, you know, not even realise that you've done it. No, this place is, it's like which way does the street slope because when the rain falls, which way does the water go, all right? These sorts of things are, and and it's an extraordinarily densely populated area. Yeah. But in the breaks, um, Giddy tells a story that, you know, Clinton would pull him aside and go, Giddy, what if we went down, you know, um, Robertson Street, I'm just making them up, what if we went down Robertson Street and then we drew it across, you know, um, uh, Balfour Street but then stopped it before we got to this corner? Do you think that would work? Because that might be a way we can get there. He knew the fucking streets by name and he could, like, that was what the U.S. president could do. That was the superpowers that U.S. presidents used to have. And now we've got what we've got. It's pretty fucking scary shit. Yeah, right. <laughs> like that's what it used to take to, you know, work at like that level intim- of diplomacy. Intimate knowledge of the that, streets of Jerusalem. That is what diplomacy used to take. Right. As the leader, you had to be that sharp and that well briefed and that knowledgeable and obama used to stay up all night reading code books all fucking night just to be on top of whatever you had to do the next day don't freak me out (laughs) (laughs) okay i've don't freak me out i've come to a place of dear god you know i'm doing my prayer hands you already said you don't believe it (laughs) i know i don't believe i'm already freaked out because of that as well (laughs) because there is no god no one's listening to me but there's a part of me that just wants to believe that Trump is fooling us all and he's actually a genius <laughs> and he's got this. <laughs> I really do want to believe that because uh, I think that that's for the good of everyone. Well, Inshallah, as they say. <laughs> I'd like to think that what we are in right now is we're in the, we're in the uh, emotionally abusive relationship that we have before we finally find the person that we go... Oh, this is what life can be like when I'm with someone who's really great. But we're not all going to find that. I mean, you might find that person and there's going to be, you know, people on the other side of the political spectrum that are going to be very unhappy with that and very feel a level of disquiet with that. No one's ever going to, you know, Obama wasn't perfect and there was a lot of people that criticised Obama, Hmm. Um, you know, and I'm I'm sure that many of them would have had a good point to. Bill Clinton certainly wasn't perfect. No. George Bush wasn't perfect. No. no, no, nobody is. This is true. Um, so I don't know if we're ever really going to get to a point where we're like, oh, we have all collectively found our person and our butt cheeks can now relax. It's like, well, there's always going to be people that are, you know, not going to be happy with it. I think the difference with Trump is that he's um, unpredictable and and plays 
and, and has thrown out the rule book. So in every sense of the word, everyone's just like kind of waiting to see what happens next rather than being in a position of, okay, I'm sort of, I'm a bit, I'm chilling, I'm cool, I know what's going to happen. We sort of, we don't really know But is that the happen. overarching strategy though? Is that the overarching strategy to keep everyone freaked out so no one moves in any direction? Man, I don't know. So you can just go and do what you want? I don't know. There is a podcast, um, I don't know how, some, this is a, just a divisive podcast, some might say, um, it, Waking Up with Sam Harris. Great. Um, have you listened to Waking Love Up with him. Sam? Oh, I know, there's something about Sam. He always rants about certain things, but he's got, um, he interviews really interesting people. This is, this is where I start to really, really like Sam, is when it's like less Sam, more someone else who's interesting, prompted by Sam. And he spoke to a guy called Scott Adams, who is, I think. The guy who wrote Dilbert. The guy who wrote Dilbert. Great fucking episode. Did you listen to that? Fuck, of course I wrote. Of course I listened. I would highly encourage everybody listening right now to listen to that episode. I don't know what number it is, but just look it up. You'll find it. Waking Up with Sam Harris, the episode with Scott Adams, where Scott Adams was talking about, you know, Donald Trump as being almost like this sort of evil genius. This master manipulator, this man with a plan, the man who, who knows exactly what he's doing, exactly what he's saying, and the, that there is an absolute method to his madness. And Sam, who, one, there's two things about Sam. One, he hates Trump, and two, he never gets agitated. But he was getting agitated in that podcast. Like, I could, you could hear it in his voice, which is calm as hell. But even he was like, so are you saying that this is a good thing that you you just so lying no and knowing that you're lying does that make it any better you know saying things because you feel like they're gonna get you to a certain end even though they're wrong is that right type thing um but it was a super interesting episode Hmm. and one where i'm like there's really a part of me that wants to believe that trump has has got some things under control and I don't want to buy into the frivolous shit anymore. I'm not interested in what his wife's wearing or the Christmas decorations or the, the I'm not interested in any of that shit. I don't care. I don't want to see it reported on. I'm not interested in reading it. You know, I'm much more, I think that that's, yeah, it's sort of distracting from the main, from the main meal. It's a, I listened to it twice. That, that podcast? Yeah. yeah that. So I, there was stuff that went by. I was so busy contemplating Hang on, especially when Scott's like, ah, look, man, he's just, he's just, you know, doing a thing to get people riled up because once they're riled up, then they're too busy to, you know, he's over here doing something else. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, hang on a fucking second. And then two minutes ago by, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> but wasn't there a part of you that was like, that's genius? Yeah. But then there's also part of you that's like, that's terrible. <laughs> yes. Right? So I'm just, I'm stuck in this kind of like, you know, this gray zone of, is this genius or the worst? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, his volatility is not. I'm, it's not something that it um, that instills a lot of confidence. But maybe he's got a method to that mm. volatility, and he's planning something really good. You know? Can I just believe that for the rest of the year at least? Yeah. Leave me alone. The rest of the year you're going to spend on holidays. Yeah. yeah. As a woman who loves routine, what is your routine going to consist of? Yoga, one, I can do a headstand now. It's taken me six months, but I'm cool, man. I get my feet in the air. I last a couple. Support on elbows, that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah support yeah. on elbows. It's a goodie. That's a, that's a goodie, isn't it? Yeah, I can do that. Um, yoga, 
reading, um, kind of doing bits of writing, um, cooking. I've been doing a fair bit of cooking. How did I turn into like a deeply uncool middle-aged person all of a sudden? But that's all that's, the four things you've already mentioned are pretty fucking cool. Are they cool? Oh yeah. I guess I'm cool. Yeah, no, I'm yeah, super yeah. cool. I'm fine. Um, doing a lot of cooking, looking up kind of recipes, and very slow sort of cook, just pot like chopping. Because normally I'm like get in, bang, 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 cook, high heat, yada yada yada. But now I'm just like taking it easy with my podcasts and my cooking, trying new things, um, and just trying to get some time outdoors. And, and, you know, pe- and, and just see people that I like. Mm. I had dinner with a friend last night at a, at a nice place and it was a nice bottle of wine and we talked about a whole bunch of really interesting things. And that's, I think I just want to do that for all the time. <laughs> <laughs> just like be around really interesting people and, you know, live a kind of, and I know it can't happen when you're at work because things are so intense and I, that's good. I like, I like the balance of it. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. Sounds like a good wind down. Um, I, think so. I, hope so. I don't know if you're anything like me, but if I get if I'm when I'm doing live stuff, it takes me a couple of hours to come home and be normal yeah, again. Yeah, of course, because you're running on the adrenaline of yeah. it. Yeah, so yeah. you need to. And there's sometimes when I'm like, I'm in a full face of makeup. I've just done a live live show. It's 8 p.m. and I'm like, I'm I'm ready to go. I'm all dressed up with nowhere to go. Yeah, you like drive home, and sometimes no one's home, and I'm just like eating ham out of a bag with like a full <laughs> face of makeup on. My hair's zhuzhed, you know. <laughs> I've got an adorable dress on. I'm like, this is, this is, this feels wrong. But <laughs> eating ham out of a bag. <laughs> yeah. If that's not the name of your podcast, I don't, I don't know, know what, what it is. is. Ham out of a bag. <laughs> yep. That sounds like a pretty good holiday. I hope so. I yeah. think it will be. Yeah. And then you learn. And then it's good if you get to a point where you're like, oh, okay, I'm done. I'm, I've got to go. And I think I will. Yeah. I definitely think I will. Yeah. It's, it's the balance, isn't it? It's the balance, I, I came man. to that realisation very, very recently, only recently, but it's, that, it's the balance. One makes the other better. All right. Yes. Yes. You need them both. You, you fucking need, them, need both. them both. Yeah. One makes the other I better. I was always like, no. Let me say it in their voice. One makes the other better. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Now you believe it. Now that's the only <laughs> way I believe it is if you tell me in an Eckhart Tolle voice. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so stoked you came around, man. I'm so happy. This has been this has been. I feel like I'm your friend now, which is a bit weird. <laughs> Fuck! Look at that. One fifty two. One fifty two. Boom. No, one hour and fifty two. <gasps> really? Cracker. That felt. I don't know. Are you, please don't appease me, but that felt really fast. Did it? Or uh, the best ones do. Shut up. <laughs> Ah, shut up. You say that to everyone, I don't believe you. It's one it's one fifty three now. One fifty three. God. Should we talk about Israel Palestine some more? I don't know. What do you think? Crack the two. You, yeah. All right, we'll get to two. We'll get to um two. when did you first realise you were funny? Oh. Um uh, probably very young. My my mother always told me I was funny. When was the first time you remember getting a laugh? Like a laugh laugh from a stranger. A laugh laugh from a stranger. Um, maybe in, um, high school and it was, um, at, at, at a friend's house, it was her mum, and I can't remember what it, what it was that I was saying, but I, yeah, I remember her kind of laughing and I was like, wow, she's into it. Okay, good. But I still never really thought that that was my, my, my strong point. I was never like, I'm going to be funny. 
you know, I, I, it was just like, oh, this is me and there's this a side element that sometimes I can be a little bit funny. And I'd always get told in high school, you know, oh, you're funny. Did that funny help you cope with some of the fairly horrific things you've witnessed doing your job as a journalist overseas? Probably, yeah. I'm, very, I'm also very cynical. My humour is very dark. It's not for everybody. Mm. I tend not to share it with everybody because sometimes the, the work environment I work in is so it's not normal. Like sometimes I, I think, what would it be like if I worked in an office in the city? Like I couldn't say half the things that I say, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think humour helps everything, right? Mm. Like if you, can, if you can look at something and laugh or if you can look at something and find the funny in it, it would help enormously. And I find, I find funny in horrible situations. I think they're the ones that you need to find funny in the most. I saw, I saw it in both my parents who as doctors would just see death and sadness and having to tell people they're going to lose a leg and, you know, all the fucking time. But that's a way doctors deal with um, grim shit yeah. every day. Were your parents funny? Every day. Um, Dad was. Dad was very funny. But, you know, they would do things like doctors do things like, I'm not going to say my parents, I don't want to throw them anywhere. But, like, say, for example, it's, it's, it's a bit different now because um, patient records are, are publicly available. Um, but there was a time like 20, 30 years ago where patient records were, it's like, you know, the thing that they write on the chart at the bottom of a bed. Right. right? You know, that's got a cover over it. Yeah. That the other doctor picks up. Yeah. Uh, who's changed shifts and goes, oh, okay then. Like, let's just say young Rebecca, she's five, cute as a button, has colossal inoperable brain cancer. Right. Has no hair, has a giant zipper scar across her skull, has her My Little Pony in her hand, has probably got a couple of weeks, all right? And um, she has, a, 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 she has a, a slightly strange left eye, all right? Uh, that's just, you know, she's a little weird. So in the folder it will say, and, you know, and mum and dad are by the bedside morning. In the folder it will say, Rebecca, FLK, um, uh, reporting this, that, that, that. FLK means funny-looking kid. Right. So the next doctor has left a thing there, has left a thing there for the next doctor right. to just go, this is as bad as sad as it's ever going to get. Yeah. But here's a little something that will make it just a right. little bit easier. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can pay that. I yeah. can, yeah, I, can, I, think, I think you need those kind of um, in-jokes and those like little bits of release when you're dealing with things that are really, really difficult. And that's what, you know, that's... I find that people who are attracted to journalism or attracted to sort of grim shit have have that about them kind of innately built. Not everyone, mm. but there's a lot who would also kind of, yeah, deal deal with the shit that they see with a level of kind of cynicism or humour or, mm. you know. I'm not earnest. I'm not an earnest person. Right. What's the, like, when you were, when you were an overseas correspondent, like, would you like being the Land Cruiser with you and the camo and the Sandy and the Fixer on the way back from, you know, watching women your age with four kids, you know, dragging children across a desert going, oh. what's on the fucking room service menu? <laughs> Soundy, camo. <laughs> I'm sorry, what are all of these things? <laughs> oh, I, I was show? in Africa on my own. Fuck. I was in Africa by myself with my camera and my tripod and my little bag full of um, stuff. 
and I was traveling and I was arranging everything. I was producing, I was reporting, I was shooting, I was doing everything. And there was, um, there's, there's one story. I don't know if we've got enough time to, maybe I'll just tell this story very, very quickly. And then you can tell me to fuck off. No. Um, but I was, I did this story in, in, um, in Uganda on something called nodding disease. And it was this very strange case of young children in particular in this certain part of Uganda who started to get sort of like droopy, droopy sort of heads. Um, and nobody, nobody knew what it was from. And there was, you know, people who were saying it was contaminated water and yada, yada, yada. And so I decided to, I found, I was reading the local paper and I found the story of this girl who had um, this disease and her parents didn't know what to do with her. Um, and so that they had tied her to a tree. Um, so I, I found the charity that has, was sort of working with this, this, this family. I'd rented a car driving a, around Uganda on my own. And I said, can I go and can we meet this family? Would you be able to reach out to them? Sure. We can reach out to them. And I went there and there's this girl who's about 12 years old and she's, um, tied to a tree. So she's got a rope around her leg and the, the rope is tied to the tree so she can't go, you know, any further than the length of the rope. But And she's tied because she wandered off at one point. She's kind of had sort of had has is a very slow learner. That's what this disease apparently does to the body. But she wandered off and she kind of slipped and, and fell into a fire. And so she she – but it was just her hand, so she must have tried to stop herself from falling into this fire by – with her hand and so her right hand was burnt the fingers on her right hand were all burnt and they were um charred and there was skin and there was you know you could see the bone and I got there and I that was the first thing I saw and I saw her hand and I saw her kind of just crouching there with the rope around her leg tied to the tree and it's just me I'm not with, there's nobody else here. I'm in this family home. Um, the person from the charity is with me who, who's, you know, he's the one, he's my sort of co- like connection to that family. And I was like, whatever you do, don't cry. I'm like, you can cry later, but you are in, you are a professional journalist you're coming here to investigate your whatever it is you know you're coming here to report on something don't don't cry be cool this is you're an observer sort of thing um and so we did that we did the story and I did the interview with the mother and I shot you know a whole bunch of sort of sequences um with her and um then kind of left and got to the hotel room and just bawled my eyes out and I had to call my friend who was living in Beirut at the time because she was she has also done a whole bunch of this kind of stuff and she used to travel on her own as well. There was not one other person there that I could talk to. I had to call her in a totally different, you know, hemisphere and just tell her. And she was like, look, it's okay, it's okay to feel like that, you see things, you can't do anything, it's not, sometimes it's not your place. And I tried, I tried, called, there was a hospital, there was a Mari Stopes hospital just down the road from where I was, and I said, if I pay for this girl to come here, will you fix her hand? She just needed, 
like ointment and bandages. You know what I mean? It wasn't fucking life-saving surgery. And they said, yeah, we'll do it. And so I talked talk to the guy from the chariot and I said, you can get, if you, she can come here tomorrow, I'll pay for the transport and for the medical. Um, and, you know, you're in Uganda. It's not, it's, it's a certain amount of money, but it's very doable, you know. Um, and I remember that it was that day and at the last minute they said, oh, the family, the family, the guy from the charity called me and he said, oh, the family said that they're busy and they can't bring her to Gulu because they were about an hour away. That was it? That was it. So I called the hospital and I said, she's, she's not coming. Yeah, that was it. But you couldn't do everything. You couldn't do nothing. You did something, which is you shared her story. Yeah. And that's the something that you did. And that's got an extraordinary power about it. And even sharing that story again, as people listening right now, who will look around, whatever they're doing, they might be chopping food, listening to their podcast as well, going, fuck, I've got food. Right. I've got two hands. And that feeling that they're experiencing right now as we speak is the thing that you did. Well, yeah, I mean, I hope it, on some level it does, you know, impact in some way. But, yeah, that was a very full-on thing. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. No, oh, no worries. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> expecting to, but now here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Have we reached, have we reached two hours yet? Two hours and four minutes. All right. Jan Fran, cracker. Thank you. Thanks Thank you so for sharing that, though. That is really, really sweet that you shared that. Uh, a, a dear friend of mine is from, from Uganda, and her dad uh, uh, works in the university there. So, I've, uh, you know, I've heard, and she and I used to, she was a flight mate for a long time. And, um, yeah, she's shared some tales. She was, they had to escape when Amin came in. So, oh, right. Oh, yeah, she's got some stories of the fucking... Ooh. I couldn't sleep for a couple of days when she first told me. I can imagine. Yeah. I can, uh, ima- I can only pretty, imagine that. Pretty fucking lucky to live where we live. Very much. Um, um, yeah. Like, even just by the virtue of the fact that you're listening to a podcast, you've got access to a phone. <laughs> you know, yeah. You have internet access. That puts you in an economic spot beyond... Millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people yeah. on this planet. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's a thing to be grateful for. You know, it really is. We're, we're fucking lucky by the chance of whatever it was that threw the dice yeah. that we popped out of a womb yeah. where we did. We really are. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing, man. I totally agree. Hey, um, yeah, so thanks for coming around. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You got. I'm going to shoot your photo real quick. All right. Yeah. I, I've, you've got your lovely take my photo shirt on. I do. Well, I thought I'd do bright colours. You know. Just hey, good. They, they come up well. It's a bit boxy, but yeah. It's all right. It's, por- it's portrait. It's from. It's fine. Great. It looks great on you. Okay. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
That was Jan Fran. You can find her on Twitter at J-A-N underscore underscore F-R-A-N, Jan Fran. You can also see her on the nightly SBS news show, The Feed, which uh, I believe is starting back for its 2018 season very, very soon. A big thanks to everyone that helped me make the show. I do not make it by myself. My audio production is by the very talented Andy Marr, show production by Haley Van Spagna, and music production by the incredibly talented Toe Hider. Uh, until next time, until we speak next week, look after yourselves. Don't forget, no mental state is a permanent state. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.